This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, and welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 35. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, as always. Sure thing. Welcome back uh, from your your holiday. I had to solo cast it last week, but um, I feel back to normal here. So uh, glad to have my sidekick back. So thanks for being here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy to be here. So last week uh, you missed a good episode. We did our our top ten interviews of the summer months, basically for people that may have missed one or two episodes, or maybe all the episodes due to holidays and quarantines or whatever reason. So we did sort of a, a flyover summary of, of the top 10 interviews, just playing little clips from those top 10 interviews. So it was a, it was a fun episode. So if, if you haven't heard that yet and you're listening to this episode, I encourage you to go back to episode number 34 to get sort of the, the flyover summary of every, everything you may have missed. And um, we've got a great show for you today. Uh, a couple, a couple, a few different topics we're going to cover. We're going to cover some uh, current events and trends within the digital transformation space to start. And then later in the show, we're going to have Brad Feeks from Estes Group, and he's going to talk about basically a tale of two ERP implementations and talk about how two very similar companies that look very similar, if not identical on paper, same industry, same technology they're deploying, same size, same level of complexity, but yet they have two very different outcomes. And these are this is a real case study uh, that, that he's been involved with that we'll unpack a bit more and talk about what those nuances are. And uh, spoiler alert, it comes down to culture and change management. So that's what we're going to unpack later later today when we have uh, Brad on the show. And we might as well just get it out right now. We've already hit uh, the word change management, and we're only a couple minutes into this episode. So there you go. Um, we should start a drinking game or something uh, based on every, every time we talk <laughs> about change management. Um, so that we'll have Brad on the show, and then later we're going to have a few different uh, guests from Third Stage. We're, we're going to play a few clips from our three-year anniversary. This year is the three years of being in business as, a, as an organization. We've grown tremendously in that time. We've got a lot of great team members on our team. And we actually have three different video clips that we're going to play that cover some of the, basically the three things you need to know about different topics. We're going to cover change management, business process management, and how to choose the right enterprise technology. So we're going to give you sort of three quick tips in each of those areas, and then we'll debrief on it after the fact. So that's the layout the lay of the land for today's show. But before we get into the guest, into those other topics, uh, you've got some interesting sort of current events or newsworthy items to talk about here today. Kyler, what, what have you got for us? Yeah, yeah. So I, the first thing I wanted to talk about today is, is obviously a huge hot topic culturally for the United States, which is um, our COVID-19 vaccine mandate that President Biden had announced. Um, so basically, if, if those international audience members don't know about it, Long story short, the U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration requires employees vaccinated, um, to be vaccinated, I should say, against COVID-19 or be subject to weekly tests. And that applies to businesses with more than 100 employees. 
And so today we're, we're not going to get into the politics about it, but what I had found is this is a huge um, wrinkle in kind of the supply chain or warehouse management part of supplying vaccines from actually the production to getting it in people's arms. So I think a lot of times, Eric, people don't understand kind of all of the steps that go into that when it comes to trucking, warehousing, distribution operations, those types of things. So I wonder if you could kind of give us a quick overview of what does that look like from a supply chain management um, process, and then we can kind of talk about the impact quickly after that. Yeah, that's a, it's a great topic, and um, I was almost hoping you would bring up the political aspect of it because what a, what a great debate we could have in a controversial <laughs> episode. But being true right. to our tech, our agnostic, independent uh, business model and approach to this show and, and third stage as an organization, it's probably best that we stay neutral on on that uh, topic. But you know, I think that's you, know, you you brought this up in the context of the United States mandate, but other countries have similar mandates sure. and passports and things of that nature. And even yeah, if we back thing. up even even more, you look at just how amazing it is, what, what an amazing global human feat it is that we were able to develop and distribute a vaccine in such a short period of time throughout the world. And now not everyone in the world has equal access to those vaccines yet. And there's certain parts of the world that are still craving or trying to get more, uh, more access to vaccines. But um, in general, you know, it's being rolled out pretty quickly throughout the world. And so, you know, I think if you if you start at the beginning, you know, you look at there's a there's the product development piece of it, which is just developing the actual vaccine itself, the product lifecycle management, the regulatory aspects of that. Um, certainly, you know, figuring out how to how to create the recipe, if you will, for what that those vaccines are going to be, and then you know that sort of triggers the entire supply chain from there, as far as knowing what materials to acquire and when, and being able to get it from multiple uh, suppliers on a massive scale, by the way. I mean, it's very rare that you have essentially a startup type of scenario where you have a new product and you immediately have a target audience of, you know, six or eight, however many people are in the world right now, eight billion, I think it is. My kids always correct me. I would say like five or six billion and they always correct me and say it's seven or eight or whatever it is. Billions of people, you have an immediate market. So that the fact that we were able to ramp up globally, that sort of production and supply chain is pretty, pretty impressive. So it takes a lot of moving parts for raw material acquisition, building the the uh, manufacturing plants to be able to manufacture the stuff, being able to get it into warehouses, keep it cold, you know, which is another part of it that, that those vaccines have to stay at a low temperature. And that creates a whole bunch of logistical and storage types of nightmares. Um, so the warehouses have to be cold. The transportation has to get it to the right people, but keep the product cold at the same time. And then ultimately distributing it to all these, you know, fragmented fragmented clinics and hospitals and places that ultimately distribute the vaccine. So that's sort of a quick flyover. But if you just think about all those parts and all those moving pieces and how many people and functions and business processes that had to be stood up from scratch in a very short period of time, I mean, it's pretty incredible that, you know, that there were here, quite frankly, I know a lot of people listening might say, well, yeah, but there's not enough vaccines or a lot of the world is under vaccinated, which is true. But if you really back up and look at how many vaccines have been distributed from the time the product, you know, the, the idea for a vaccine was originated until the regulatory approvals, until, you know, the production and manufacturing distribution, it's it's pretty incredible feat. So that's at a, at a real high level, the different steps in the process there. Yeah, definitely. And I, I wonder if you might kind of help us understand the impacts of our global labor shortage and 
policies that do mandate anything when it comes to vaccines, obviously, is what we're talking about now. But how does that impact that labor shortages and that stress on the supply chain? Yeah, that's a that's a big problem here in the United States. I know it's a problem in Australia, Europe, um, you know, the three major regions where we have a presence or an office and a team. I know it's that, that's a common right. problem. I suspect it's probably a, a problem in other parts of the world as well. But it, it's absolutely a problem. I mean, it, it's it's a problem in that the supply chains are getting disrupted as a result of not having enough labor. Uh, but then the companies that are dependent on the supply chains that are being disrupted, they're trying to get something from the supply chain so that they can do their part within their supply chain or for their customers, that they're having trouble staffing and getting the right labor uh, in place. So it just sort of creates a domino effect uh, throughout the entire supply chain, throughout the entire global economy. Uh, and that's why, you know, quite frankly, this whole concept of human capital management and employee experience and what you as an organization can do differently to create a, a more attractive work environment, a stickier work environment where people want to stay um, and not jump ship and go somewhere else, or in some cases, just be happy being unemployed because that is uh, you know, a, a problem here in the United States as well as other parts mm-hmm. of the world where for some people, it's just as attractive to stay at home and collect federal unemployment as it is to go to work and earn a living. So all those things are creating pressures on the labor market. So you know, you wish that wasn't the case. And there's a lot of root causes to those issues that you wish and hope get fixed someday. But in the meantime, that's the hand that all of us are dealt. So we've got to figure out how do we create an environment where we can mitigate that risk. And and I think that's what a lot of organizations are struggling with now. And there's a lot of transformations we're involved with on the human capital side that are meant to address that challenge. Yeah. And I I think so many people don't, they may understand the unintentional consequences of those types of things, but they may not realize it. You know, to give you an example, a real world example, I was at the bakery today because my son has a donut addiction and there was a huge conversation between the um, bakery staff about how they cannot get specific items to bake any of their goods because there are no truck drivers. Um, You know, and it really makes you think through the process holistically. Uh, and I know a lot of companies are are kind of really struggling with that. So I'm going to ask you a really hard question, but does a, a short-term supply chain stress that's, um, you know, supposedly the objective is long-term gain, is that something that supply chains can handle or if it breaks, is it broken forever? Wow, that's a, a, minute, that's a difficult a question. Minute, <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, why well, I feel the pressure here because I don't have a good answer for yeah. you. I, I feel and I think like... we're gonna do more on this, guys, audience members. You know, we're gonna talk, we're gonna do some blogs and different videos, but we wanted to talk about it as it is so current. So, you know, stay tuned for that. Yeah, yeah, and whoever you know, if you're listening and have a have an opinion on this, I'd love to hear it. You know, as far as just dropping a comment in the comment section of whatever platform you're listening or watching, but. Um, I, I think my gut tells me that two, I, I guess I have a two contradictory answers. One is I think it's, it's going to create permanent disruptions and problems that are, I don't want to say permanent, but they're longer term. They're going to be harder to fix and you can't just turn the supply chain on and off. But on the flip side, I think what's happening is a lot of organizations are realizing that we have this, these, these disruptions, we have these risks in our supply chains. 
So let's create a more reliable and resilient supply chain that can withstand these sorts of disruptions. So I think I think we'll figure it out. I mean, I think we're going to find solutions to it. I, I think if we were to stay status quo, I think those those disruptions and those problems are probably going to be fairly long term, if not at least intermediate term. Uh, but I think organizations, just human nature and technology and you know the, the pace of change in the world in general, I think that will lead us to solutions that will help us solve this problem. Yeah. And from a, a change management perspective, I can only imagine if you have a finite supply, or at least you can't get the supply, right, to your business of 10,000 people. Um, how do you how do you prioritize the employees that you that you want to require to be vaccinated? I can only imagine the change management issue behind that as well. Um, so I think we're going to dive into just some good tactics today with Brad um, to talk about what that looks like from utilizing change um, from a business management perspective. Um, So I know I'm excited to get into that with him. But I want to switch gears and talk about a different kind of current event. We talk about a lot of private equity um, acquisitions funding on here. Um, And so recently, uh, and if I say the name of the the PE firm wrong, I apologize, but Akerna um, actually acquired uh, 365 Cannabis which is built on Microsoft Dynamics 365 Business Central, which we talk about a lot. Um, And it basically is one of the first systems that offers a cannabis-facing ERP complex portfolio of tax, financials, reporting, compliance, those types of different things. Um, And it's it's a huge acquisition of 17 million to combine these companies. so I, I know we've talked a little bit about cannabis and the, and the legalization. Um, so I wanted to talk about that just in correlation with something else that I found in the hotel industry, just to talk about these industry-specific softwares. Um, so H2O Hospitality also had a, you know a huge funding, third-stage funding going through. Um, they received $30 ma- million. They're a South Korean and Japan-based startup that automates front and back-end processes during um, reservations, room management, front desk duties, those those types of different things. So I had seen this as kind of a trend, Eric, and I, I wanted to ask you about it. Do you think that as we move into new software systems, whether we're talking about open source or our, you know, our legacy vendors, will we see more kind of industry-specific type of software systems start to come out um, as opposed to just kind of more core systems. What are your thoughts on that? That's a, that's a really interesting question. And, and I didn't know about D365, cannabis or cannabis 365, D365 being acquired by uh, the, the PE firm. So that's, that's news to me. I, I wasn't aware of that, but um, along the lines of what you're saying with the cannabis industry and the hospitality industry, Another industry where we saw some significant movement is in the manufacturing and distribution industry just in the last uh, couple of weeks. It was announced that ECI acquired uh, DCOM, which is a, a fairly well-known mid-size manufacturing distribution ERP system. And ECI focuses on um, manufacturing distribution, and they have a number of systems in their portfolio that are specific to that industry. 
So I, I find it fascinating because I think it's I think it's it's a constant push and pull, and there's a constant te- tension in the marketplace between the big massive ERP systems that try to be everything to everyone, and then the super deep super focused systems that try to be focused on one particular niche, and neither one is perfect. So there's a constant battle, I guess you'd say. And I don't think honestly, I don't think it'll ever get resolved. I think the pendulum will continue to sort of sway in the middle, and you know lean certain directions at times and swing back the other way at times, much like, you know, politics or religion or whatever. I mean, a lot of times those things evolve over time and there's no, never a, a clear cut answer, a right answer that everyone agrees on. So I think it's going to, you know, as these big ERP vendors like SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, as they get bigger, I think what it does is it creates a vacuum at the second tier, more the niche focus solutions where there's an opening there because, Inevitably, SAP, for example, can't be everything to everyone in every single industry. So it's opening up a bunch of niches for these for these niche players. Same thing happened with uh, Salesforce, you know, 15 years ago or whatever it was in the CRM space where they attacked a vulnerability of big ERP vendors and tried and succeeded at being a better CRM system than the ERP vendors could be. Same thing with Workday on the HCM side. Now, the interesting thing is if you take those two examples, Workday and Salesforce, they both started off as niche solutions. Now they themselves are becoming these big, massive vendors that can do a lot of different things. And Workday, I just read today, actually, that Workday acquired a um, configure price quote, like a sales order management software, which is which is a game changer for them. That's going to you know, put them in a, in a different uh, uh, realm, I guess you'd say, as far as really moving into that ERP space. So that's a long way of saying that there's a constant evolution of vendors moving kind of upstream as they get bigger, and that creates openings for these niche players. But then those niche players end up getting consolidated into these bigger platforms, and I think it just continuously, you know, you kind of churn through that to where you're constantly getting, you know, new vendors in the marketplace addressing specific needs that the big vendors aren't successful at. Right, right. I think I think that kind of creates some healthy competition, though. You know, as long as yeah. you're able to create some awareness around these more um, niche vendors or um, specific industry specific systems um, yeah. type of thing. So I, I, um, I wonder if these bigger systems will kind of continue to create uh, different industry specific umbrellas within their own system. I know, for example, um, Cam on my team, we were going through um, some of NetSuite's media kits um, this week, because we do a lot of insight research here at Third Stage, and we want to make sure that all of our materials are updated. Um, but we went through the systems, and in not having ever worked with all of their different systems, we're like, wow, there is a lot of different things that NetSuite can do as far as those offerings. Um, so do you think that will continue to kind of push the bigger players to, say, create hospitality widgets or modules or those types of things? within their systems? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it will. I think it's going to be a constant, um, the big vendors are going to constantly have to pivot and decide, you know, strategically what's more important for us to go after a big conglomerate or, or bigger companies that are conglomerates and have very diverse needs, or do we want to err on the side of going more towards those niche, either industry or functional solutions? Um, and, and again, I don't think there's a right answer. I don't think one side of the equation is going to ever win out. I think it's just going to be a constant push and pull and um, the rate of pace or the rate of change, the pace of change with technology in general and the low barriers to entry, relatively low barriers of entry 
to entering the software market creates this constant uh, excitement, I guess you'd say, which which is the good news for for buyers. The bad news is that it creates it can be overwhelming and confusing knowing what you know right. what technology is viable. You know who who can best fit my needs. Is this a fly by night newer technology? Should I be concerned? You know those sorts of things. That's why, quite frankly, a lot of clients hire us is to help them navigate those decisions. But I think in general, it's, it's an exciting time for the enterprise technology space for sure. Yeah, definitely. You know, we've we've seen so much movement specifically with cannabis and the overall legalization um, and almost the legitimization of their overall business processes um, in knowing that they actually do need legit systems, right, um, to be within that space. So definitely we'll continue there. If you are interested, by the way, in um, more ERP-based cannabis, we have um, a podcast on our digital stratosphere channel and then also a blog on our website if that is something you want to look more into. But I wanted to, you know, kind of we also, move into... Sorry to interrupt you, just one last oh, yeah. closing thought on that. You know, the other the other thought there is that in the United States, it's legal, but most of the world is still very right. much not legal. And in fact, there's, you know, the certain cultures that... Yeah, you know, and it's so state offending you. Yeah, we're discussing... Right. Right. Yeah. But sorry, I interrupt you. Go ahead with your with your next question there. Oh no, I I was just going to say absolutely, and it's and for us here, it's so state based or community based um, as well, and and how that works, and that's why it's been kind of interesting to see a system kind of emerge from one of the big titans within the industry like Microsoft, um, because there is such a demand for that um, in an environment. And again, we we have no opinions on that. We just follow the trends of the overall industry. And that's what we, you know, bring to this show, but kind of moving into the change management aspect, which obviously we're going to, we're going to touch on heavily here with Brad with such great interview, great points. And who knew someone could be so well-rounded in, in that. But before we do that, I I wanted to share as a follow-up to not last week's solo cast, but the last week before that we talked about how to make sure that your change management is not just surviving, but thriving. Um, and there was a, a follow-up article to that. It talked about three outdated ideas that could hold you back um, within change management. Uh, so I wanted to talk about one of those, which is a common misconception that a traditional approach is more effective. Um, and that was the Harvard Business Review. And then it talked about those two change cycles um, that's a traditional approach where we're pushing things like anxiety, fear, and producing resistance, um, but at that changing philosophy. Um, so what I wanted to talk to you about, Eric, is specifically leadership on that and how now the pandemic has kind of pushed leaders into being these more fluid approaches to change management because they didn't have a lot of those traditional pieces of measurement. I wanted to see if, if you thought that that was kind of a redefinition or um, a revolution, if you will, with the pandemic and moving workforces from home or struggling with supply chain and kind of redefining what organizational change management means. Is that something you've seen? Yeah, it, I think if anything, it's it's uh, the the pandemic and, and the displacement of some or, or a lot of employees throughout organizations has forced change in ways that organizations weren't expecting, not just in terms of where work is done, but then obviously that adds a layer of stress and complexity to the overall internal systems. 
So it sort of forced a lot of organizations to go through digital transformation, even if they weren't planning on it. And it certainly forced a business transformation and a change management need um, as it relates to just the, you know, the, the new normal or whatever you want to call call it going forward with, with employees in the workplace. So I think change management has to adapt and evolve. I think the key, though, is that you, you don't know, even, even if things were normal right now, which they're definitely not, but even if they were, you were, let's rewind two, three years ago when things were relatively normal, um, even then, you don't really know how technology that you might be implementing within your organization is going to impact your, your organization. Uh, you may have a vision for it. You may have a sort of a direction you want to go or a culture you're trying to create or an operating model you're trying to enable. But until you really get into that and defining you know, what those change impacts are and what the impacts of your culture are and all that stuff, you don't really know. So I, I think just by definition, effective change management has to be nimble, even if you weren't talking about it in the context of, of COVID-19 and, and the, the fallout from that. So I think the best change management methodologies are the ones that can assess and understand your unique situation, your unique impacts, and then create a tailored strategy and execution roadmap for, for accomplishing those changes. Absolutely, absolutely. And when it comes to leadership, um, a recent Forbes article had talked about how that pandemic is not only redefining what that means for digital transformation, but also what that means to be a leader within an organization now. So recently, um, they Forbes has redefined the terms for CEO. So, you know, I love quiz time. So if you were going to redefine CEO, so what does C stand for? What does E stand for? And what does O stand for from uh, organizational change management, business leader perspective? What would those words be? Are you asking me this because you know I hate buzzwords? And, and you know, I'm not going to do well no, at this. <laughs> I think you like buzzwords. I think you love to hate buzzwords. Okay? I do actually. That's, that's, I was just yeah, thinking, right. that's a great point. I was just yeah. thinking that as like, I, I, I love them and I hate them at the same time. Um, <laughs> the only one I've heard is chief engagement officer. Um, that's the only. Yeah. So, so if you, if you were um, defining it, like C is for collaboration oh. and compassion type of thing. What would E be for? Um, wow, we're just laying on the cheesiness here, aren't we? With the I know. <laughs> collaboration, what did you say? Collaboration and uh... so, according to Forbes, C. I'll give you one answer, but then we're done. You need to do the others yourself. So, C is for clarity of direction and communication. What would E before? Um, I would say engagement would be. I mean, that would be one. It sounds like there could be multiple answers for the E, though. Um, that you nailed it. Ding, ding. I wish I had like the Jeopardy ding um, right. for that. What is engagement, right? Um, right. Engagement <laughs> and empathy is how they defined E. And what do you think O is? This is kind of hard. Uh, hmm. It's a good one. I, my instinct or tendency is to want to say organizational change or organizational enablement or something like that. But um, maybe I'll bypass that and say... Uh, Gosh, I don't know. That's that's a um, optimization, or uh, I, I guess that's the the one I would pick would be something like optimization. Yep. So they say orchestration of optimal outcomes. Okay, I like mine better. Maybe I should work. Yeah, for, right. I you did really good. You must like <laughs> be a CEO or something and own your own company. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So I know we have a lot coming up here with, with Brad, so I definitely want to save time to unpack that and, you know, turn down the cheese a little bit. Um, but thank you for going over those topics with us and um, really looking forward to not only talking to Brad, but debut debuting um, our three series for our third stage anniversary video series as well um, in this episode. Absolutely. That sounds good. I'm excited for that. And I'm excited for our next guest who, as you mentioned, is Brad from Estes Group. We'll, uh, we're going to talk about a tale of two ERP implementations, two very similar companies that had very different outcomes. We'll talk about the reasons why, sort of a case study discussion, uh, and we'll bring Brad onto the show right after we take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, as well as all the typical audio podcast platforms like Spotify, Google, Amazon, Pandora, Spotify, etc. And uh, I'm excited for our next guest. Uh, this is his second time being on the show here today. You mentioned before, Kyler, that uh, he's a very well-rounded person. I think that's probably the best. I think that's well well put. He he uh, he was on the show last time talking about some very technical stuff, but in a very easy to digest matter. And in fact, it was so easy to digest that even I understood what he's talking about, you know, with managed services and architecture and integration and all the stuff we talked about a few episodes ago. And I don't recall which episode it was. I don't have that in front of me. But if you go back about four or five episodes from from where we are now, um, that's where he was. But the uh, guest is Brad Feeks. Uh, He is a senior vice president at Estes Group. And Estes Group, I'll I'll let him introduce what they do. Um, But they, they, uh, have a couple clients that we're talking about here today. And uh, it's always fascinating to me how one organization that looks very similar can be really successful in their implementation. The other organization completely fails and falls flat on their face with their transformation and really trying to understand well, how can that be? You know, we talk about that a lot on the show, some of the general success factors and root causes for failure. But this is really interesting because it's more of a case study and we get into some of those details. So that's what we're going to do here with Brad. Uh, Brad, thanks for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me, Eric. It's uh, great to be talking with you again and uh, to be talking on a very different subject. Kind of fun to take one one kind of technical end of the spectrum and then move, you know, radically to the other side, to the more softer people-based spectrum, because uh, all are both uh, equally important. Yeah, that you're absolutely right. And it's it's interesting because when you were on a few weeks ago, we talked about hosting and managed services and the cloud and some pretty technical stuff. And so you're the first guest that we've ever had here that's done a total 180 on the topics, uh, you know, that, that we cover. 
Uh, first of all, you're one of the few repeat guests, but of the repeat guests we've had, none have done a 180 quite like this one. So I appreciate the uh, you coming back to do this. This is a great topic. Oh, good. I try to get the other side of my brain work and hope that it doesn't all melt down in the process. So, <laughs> right. So it's, a, it's a lot to think about for sure. Yeah, so, for sure. So I guess before we jump into the the topic at hand, maybe for those that didn't see you the other week uh, on this live stream or on our podcast, maybe give us a little bit of uh, background who you are and what Estes Group does and what your role is at Estes Group. Sure. So uh, Brad Beeks, I've been working with the Estes Group now for about eight years. I come from the uh, customer field, so uh, worked with a company for 20 some years. Uh, working my way way up through the company. And at some point, we started implementing an ERP system, and I got looped into that initiative. Um, as that initiative closed off over several years, I found myself with without uh, a direction, and I ended up finding the Estes Group as, uh, as my landing ground there for the next, next phase of my career. Uh, at the Estes Group, we do a lot of ERP-based work um, both on the consulting side in terms of the implementation configuration of applications, but also in providing the supporting services that make an ERP successful in terms of the, the standing up of the application in the cloud, the management of those components, and then even some of the peripheral services that you might need to support your overall ecosystem. So that's that's kind of us in a nutshell. Great. Well, good. Well, it's good to have you back. And when what kind of set up this whole topic and this whole uh, uh, interview that we wanted to cover here today was uh, a comment you had made. Uh, we'd exchanged a couple of emails after you were on the last time and you were talking about how you had a couple clients that were very similar on the surface. They, they were remarkably similar. They looked, um, you know, on paper, they looked not quite identical, but about as close as you could get. And you were making the comment that even though they looked the same on the surface, they had very different outcomes and there was something underlying all that that led to those very different outcomes. And so that sort of led us down this, uh, down this uh, rabbit hole of talking about mm. culture, very important rabbit hole, by the way, I don't want to be dismissive sure. of the topic. So maybe, maybe to start, tell us a little bit about um, just at a high level, tell us about these two organizations that you worked with recently that looked similar and then we'll get into how are they different? Sure. Sure. And uh, so, yeah, company specificity is one of those interesting elements of an ERP project that, that rarely gets, I think, enough daylight, uh, just because it's very easy to, to focus on the generalizable aspects of a company and those kind of uh, family characteristics of a given company sometimes don't always find their way uh, to the fore, even though they can have a, a great impact uh, on an overall uh, implementation. So I had these two companies. Uh, they were very similar, as you noted. They they were both, um, they went live in a similar time frame. So general market conditions were very similar. They were both private owned, family-based businesses. They were headquartered in the same state. Uh, they were of a similar size in terms of sales revenue. Uh, they both worked in a roughly analogous market environments, providing products of, I would say, similar complexity. They were both coming from very old systems. They both were trying to replace legacy 40-year-old systems. These were systems that had uh, found their favor in the 1980s, and they were trying to both pull away from them. And in terms of uh, because of their size, uh, they both had very similar uh, and substantial project budgets and core team contributions. So all those pieces that made for a project were in play for these two initiatives. And I had uh, they were also I would say they had the same system integrator as their partner. So they were using a similar methodology, similar 
family of consultants that came from a similar uh, background. So a lot of those things were the same, and yet the experience of the of these two companies were so diverse. Uh, one company was what I would consider kind of my golden child, my my the one you put on a pedestal in terms of all the right things happened in all the right ways. Super complex project with layers of customization and third party integrations and data conversion, all the challenges that normally faced an organization. But they had taken all of those and successfully gone live on time, on budget. Um, cutover was uh, a big uh, challenge, but it was a challenge that they very quickly got over. And pretty soon they got to be an independent company running on and I would give them uh, a weekly or a bi-weekly check-in and they would give me the hand wave and say, hey, we're good. Thanks for your help. Um, on the other side, very similar situation except for the cutover. Uh, the, the cutover was much rockier, uh, much more challenging. Uh, the company's use of the system was much less optimal. And their uh, challenges that they received in terms of processing orders, taking orders, managing inventory uh, started to affect the bottom line, started to affect shipments, definitely affected morale. It was a, a really rocky uh, implementation that at that point, from the time they went live, we spent a fair bit of time trying to stabilize and bring them up to a level, level you know, playing field just so they could keep conducting their business. And so for me, having seen those two vastly different uh, outcomes come from very similar general uh, situations, I started researching and trying to understand just what it was that made these two situations so different. And I started revisiting, I would say, some of my own background in uh, ERP change management, going back to my Six Sigma and Lean Six Sigma days to see if there were nuggets to be, to be picked about what might be uh, the, the cause of this different uh, outcome. And for me, that's where I got to this idea uh, of an ERP culture and started thinking about, well, what are the cultural aspects that we might need to take more stock of when you're, you're in the midst of an implementation? And probably especially at the, at the front end of an implementation, understanding this is the cultural environment that I'm stepping into. And these cultural factors will impact likely where we find ourselves in a year or two year when we flip the switch. Hmm. Interesting. So you may have already said this. I apologize if I missed it, but it was were both companies implementing the same technology with the technology itself had anything to do with it? Yeah, they were implementing the exact same technology, same version. OK, well, all of those things were were apples to apples. OK, so you can eliminate that, that it wasn't like you're talking about SAP versus NetSuite or something. You're talking about mm -hmm. two two uh, companies implementing the same solution, similar size. You mentioned they're family owned. Um, similar industries, but one goes live on time on budget, the other one doesn't, and the other one, I, I think you were starting to allude the fact that they, the implementation itself was rocky and uh, the use or the value that they got out of the system wasn't what the other one, what the other company experienced. Is that sort of a fair summary? It really is. It's uh, you best assess a system success after cutover. And it's it's kind of those, in, those uh, not even intangible, they're very measurable. How, how accurate does your inventory stay how does your shipment and delivery your productivity and efficiency all those metrics are things that can very easily be impacted adversely or uh, positively by a ERP system and we saw those uh, where one company kind of stayed nice and level and, and took the bumps and very quickly were back to their metrics this other company had that those challenges where those metrics all took a bit of a nosedive and that, that 
have led to the stabilization efforts to try to bring them back. Okay. Interesting. So what, what is it then? I know we, we may have given a bit of a spoiler uh, at the beginning of this discussion, but maybe for those that are jumping in right now, uh, who, who don't know where we're going with this conversation, uh, well, how would you summarize, you know, what was the core fundamental difference between those two mm-hmm. companies? It's not the technology, right. it's not different industry, not different size. It's not, they're both family owned. So you, you sort of take out all these variables that oftentimes lead to different outcomes, but what was it in your opinion? Mm-hmm. So having spent a fair bit of time researching and, and, trying to understand the pieces of how that might have gone awry with this one customer. I really think that the the biggest impact are what I would call cultural factors. Uh, I started trying to get my head around what does it mean to have an ERP culture and uh, how does a company with an ERP culture uh, or the lack of it, how does that affect their implementation? So I started to try to boil down in my mind, what are the cultural characteristics of a company that could lead it to be successful or unsuccessful in an ERP implementation? And it's prefaced that to say, you, it may not even be that these are necessarily good or bad cultural uh attributes across the board, right? Something that might make you good at ERP might be uh, an inhibitor if you're trying to do something else. And and different initiatives have different flavors to them that certainly overlap, but at the same time uh, may not have just complete uh, synergy amongst them. So a company might drive to do a certain, uh, have a certain culture and that might work very well for them given their, their market, their product, the size of their company. But when they step now into an ERP and they say, I want all of those things, but I also want this uh, this whole endeavor managed by a systemic ERP system, well, suddenly that brings up a lot of uh, potential pitfalls that may not have surfaced prior to that. Hmm. Right. So, okay. So when you talk about this culture of ERP and the differences that you see in a, in a client that was successful and another one that wasn't, how would you unpack this whole concept of culture? I mean, what are, if you had to do sort of that flyover and then we can kind of come back and drill into them, sure. what are some of the dimensions or variables that you, you see within that whole concept of culture of transformation, culture of ERP, whatever you want to call it? Sure. Well, let me give you kind of the, the bullet points. Uh, and uh, I always go back to uh, second semester business class, taking notes furiously. And I always hope that uh, my professor would give me the bullet points before. Um, so I, I, thought of six or seven kind of key aspects or characteristics that that I found that successful ERP companies had that that would be critical in being successful. Uh, one would be what I call clarity of focus. Uh, constantly what you say, separating the wheat from the chaff. Um, a second one I would call attention to detail. That is uh, attending to what uh, William Blake called the minute particulars. Uh, third factor or characteristic was preparation. You know, the ability to uh, value a plan in its execution. And uh, another factor that I thought of was what I'd call empowerment. Now, empowerment's one of those vague kind of 1960s hippie terms. And when you say it to a manager in a manufacturing environment, their eyes normally roll back and they're like, oh boy, you're going to give me one of those mandatory diversity seminar greetings. But right. I think there's really a, a, a tangible sense of empowerment that we can get into uh, Proactivity is another factor that I found is is very helpful that people and, and a culture naturally has the ability to jump ahead and um, and surface things before things fester. Um, another factor was what I called sense of ownership. And that is the case where uh, individuals within a company are willing to take on and own elements of an implementation 
And my final one, and this is, I think this is probably a general one that applies in a lot of areas, is cross-functionality. Uh, the desire to understand a business process from a, from the front to back and, and not only to look at your own section, your own piece of the map, but understand how all those pieces are fitting together. Um, organization, I found those are some dimensions that if you could understand the, those dimensions and how a company uh, performs in those dimensions, you could have a better understanding going into a project to say, okay, this is a company that has a good uh, basis or foundation to be successful with the activities of a project versus uh, one that might have some gaps and might have a need for some, a different approach or some some different emphases. Interesting. Well, that's a that's a doozy of stuff there. That's quite the list. I feel like we could spend an hour, you know, full interview on any one of these one of these things. Um, so maybe I'll come back to a few of them. And, and by the way, uh, as I'm jumping into this these uh, different factors here. Uh, those of you watching the live stream on uh, Crowdcast, YouTube, Twitter, or LinkedIn, uh, please jump in. You know, add questions, comments along the way because this is super cool stuff, and I'd love to get your uh, get your feedback or your questions uh, as a follow up here. But before we turn to the audience and get their questions, um, maybe let's come back to this whole clarity of focus. What What do you? I think I know what you mean by that, but maybe explain that a little bit. Maybe there's some nuances here that that we're, we should be aware of that we're not always aware of when you think about clarity. When I think about clarity of focus, I'm thinking about how a company separates key initiatives from tertiary initiatives and say, these are the things that are really going to move the dial for our company in our markets and based on our strategy. And they're they're good at really defining what those key ones are and focusing on them and uh, separating that from ancillary initiatives and that become distractions. Um, in, a, in an ERP case, especially say if you're in a configured order environment, uh, being able to hold your product uh, stable long enough to be able to build your configuration platform around that so that you don't have a moving target is one example. A configured order, a company that's constantly shifting its product, it's going to be very hard to implement an ERP system around a moving target. Um, so that's where when I talk about clarity of focus, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing companies that say uh, when it comes to the ERP project, this is number one. Everything else needs to be subservient to that. If you're spending time on other initiatives and they need you for ERP, you need to shift your attention to supporting this project. So in the case of the the two case studies you gave at the beginning of the discussion, the, the company that struggled uh, with the go live and with the post go live, maybe help us explain how, how they didn't accomplish that clarity of focus. Sure. I think there was probably on that side uh, a greater uh, tendency to see multiple initiatives in parallel. Uh, this one company in question had some web-enabled uh, customer-facing systems that they were trying to reinvent and redefine at the same time that they were implementing the ERP. And while that certainly was an important thing, of course, it's customer-facing, uh, it did suck some of the oxygen out of the room and, and it distracted certain individuals who were now trying to kind of multi-thread. And if those are some of your key members of the team, that really can create some challenges. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good um, sort of risk red flag for a lot of organizations to watch out for, especially with all the change happening in the world and within organizations, you really have to think about, you know, are we dedicating the right focus to this project and are we, are we moving at the right pace to account for the fact that, you know, we do or don't have the right level of clarity of focus there. I think a lot of organizations try to get too aggressive. You know, they've got a million other priorities and then they want to throw in an ERP or digital transformation on top of it, but they just don't have the resources to, to make all those projects successful. Mm -hmm. So at some point you have to figure out, okay, what are my real priorities here and where am I going to 
focus those resources and maybe cut back in other areas. Completely. It really is figuring out what are those things that could wait and what are those things that are truly time sensitive. And uh, with ERP, you, you cannot do it halfway. You have to really put that investment to it to make that foundation. And if you if you want that foundation, that has to take that that amount of effort. Right. All right. Thanks, Brad. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll ask you some more questions about these case studies. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Brad Feeks, and we're talking about a tale of two ERP implementations and how one seemingly similar implementation can succeed and another can completely fail. Let's jump right back into it. Now, what about attention to detail? Yeah, we all have heard that term in a lot of different settings, but when, you, when sure. you're talking about digital transformation or ERP project, what are some examples or what do you mean by mm -hmm. attention to detail? Right. So this one's really critical when it gets applied to an ERP environment. I see I see kind of two different threads of companies. I see companies that have made their way by being really independent, free thinking, quick thinking. I call these cowboy companies. Hmm. They, they, they play it fast and loose. They shoot from the hip. Quite often they shoot first and hopefully they're accurate. Um, and that's how they go to market. And customers sometimes like that because they are very reactive. They, they give the sense of being very customer focused. And those are all, of course, good things. Um, at times, what's sacrificed by doing that is the attention to what happens internally to your organization in terms of your inventory levels, your manufacturing steps. You uh, really are reliant on the rest of your organization having this really high level of tribal knowledge to cover for that kind of behavior. And as that tribal knowledge starts to atrophy, suddenly the gaps in the organization become more and more apparent. And I've seen this kind of culturally I entered manufacturing, I think, in about 1999. And so the people who were in the organization when I first came, they've all retired. And with them, all that tribal knowledge is gone. Now, did that get passed off and disseminated to the next generation? Uh, I would say more, most many cases it doesn't because I think we have a much more mobile society where folks slip in and out of companies much more readily than they did. This isn't the sort of uh, case these days where you have 35-year veterans of one company. So that tribal knowledge is a much, much harder thing to sustain. And as a cowboy company starts losing those people, they find themselves more and more vulnerable. Um, now, within an ERP context, a cowboy company is going to have a hard time managing inventory, uh, performing labor transactions, performing the transactions that are necessary in an ERP system to process it correctly. Oh, I, I shipped it to the customer. Did you ship it in the system? If you don't ship it, you can't invoice. If you can't invoice, now suddenly you don't have revenue. So you can see how the dominoes fall very quickly that if you're not paying attention to those critical details, and there are maybe five or six critical details in the system, issuing material, uh, shipping material, 
transferring material between bins, uh, clocking in and out of labor. Um, you, if you if you are bad at those few things, suddenly your ERP system is a mess. And if it's a mess, now suddenly you don't know the status of your product. You don't know the status of your goods. You don't know if you're going to have shortages to be able to actually produce goods to ship to your customers. The inattention to detail can suddenly undermine your entire your entire system. And uh, if you have implemented ERP to replace that uh, that um, what I call that tribal knowledge, that's where you could really find yourself in a challenge if if that attention to detail is not there. If you're not letting the system help you uh, uh, plan your business by giving it good data. Yeah, it's, it sounds so simple. Like it, you know, it doesn't sound like you're saying anything crazy that you know, some big gotcha or big aha moment. But I, on the other hand, do you think, well, then why, why did those two companies not, you know, how, what was the difference with the company that didn't do that? You know, maybe, could you give us some examples of how they didn't demonstrate that, that attention to detail or was it as simple as they're just a gunslinging organization and that's the way they wanted to remain or was there, is there more to it than that? Um, well, you know, it's interesting. This is where methodologies start to attack one another because when you're talking about lean and you say, oh, lean, we're, we're eliminating waste. We're eliminating non-value-added activity. Well, clocking in and out of this work order, that's non-value-added. I shouldn't have to do that. Uh, managing the location of this uh, good. Well, there's no value in that. The customer doesn't care where it's located. I shouldn't have to do that. And you get it to a certain uh, vicious cycle of of uh, that kind of mentality. And, you know, in a small organization where you can have visual management and, and simple things like that, maybe there's not the need for that level of ERP-based uh, administration. But if you get larger, you get to that point where you have what we used to call necessary non-value added, right? It doesn't add value because the customer doesn't pay for it, but it's necessary to do to be able to provide the things that the customer does pay for and the customer does value. Um, so that was really, I think, where the two organizations ran into some of those challenges is that um, one very clearly understood the value of inventory locations and a place for everything. Everything is placed. The other did not. Um, and so inventory levels you know, varied widely between the two companies. So the ability to transfer inventory, locate it correctly, put it from the work centers into finished goods and vice versa. Uh, one company had that ability much more readily than the other. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It, you just, uh, by the way, you just gave me a great idea for a, a blog and or YouTube video, which is a clash of methodologies. Cause I love that concept because I do, I, you, those aren't your exact words, but you're saying they attack each other. And I agree. You have to, it's, it's hard sometimes because you get conflicting frameworks and opinions on how things should, should look. And you as an organization have to figure out how to balance that uh, in a way that, that fits. Um, but yeah, that, that, uh, yeah, that attention to detail and, and the um, just the uh, discipline. It, it's really more than just attention to detail. Attention to detail. It's also discipline and uh, prioritization of knowing where to focus your your time and effort. And the tribal knowledge piece is really important too. I think that's a great point you make about um, you know you lose a lot of that over time as as you leave or as people leave the organization. Um, what about preparation? What what are some components of preparation that you saw? Uh, in these two particular cases that were mm -hmm. contrasting, you know, maybe compare it back to those two companies you were talking about. So again, this probably goes back at this level as more of kind of the project management of the two projects internally, right? So any ERP project has uh, an external element of project managers, which the system integrator and or a third party project management company are working to kind of administrate and orchestrate all the steps. 
internally to the project. You have your internal project management resources who are helping organize the project team, serve as an interface to the steering committee, and work to marshal resources as needed. Um, between those two projects, I think there was a much better skill at standard project management methodologies and the kinds of activities that would come to say, okay, if I'm going to be successful at this project, I need to look ahead and say, these are the things that I need to prepare. These are the pieces I need to set into place. Some of that might have to do with the staffing of the internal department, um, not just for the core team, but also the IT department that's kind of supporting and playing that peripheral role. And we all say um, that ERP is a business activity, not an IT activity. And that's, of course, one of the great crit, you know, pitfalls. But at the same time, a well-supported IT department can do great wonders to help a project forward um, without necessarily taking over that ownership. Um, so I think that inside of that, there was a great understanding for the, the need for preparing the company and the team through all these phases. Um, and it had to do with the kind of internal knowledge of, of the, the company itself and how to drive certain things forward, things that a system integrator is just going to be blind to. Yeah, yeah. Super interesting. Now, in that case, um, and I, I might ask you this again, uh, as it relates to some of the things we're still yet to get to, but on these things we've talked about so far, preparation, attention to detail, clarity of focus, are these things that are just inherently baked into an organization or not? Or is it something, is it a muscle that organizations can develop or should be developing either during or even before their, mm -hmm. they start their transformation or their implementation? Boy, this is this is a great question. And I, in my mind, I tend to think that these are things that existed quite often prior to an ERP project and should exist well after it. And there's often quite a bit of overlap to other areas and uh, other areas of focus. And let me do let me talk about the next one, which is empowerment, because that one for me is a really good example of, of this right thing. So we were talking just before about how uh, lean and, and ERP sometimes butt heads. Um, other times, they're immensely uh, consonant with one another. I was working with one company, and they were doing a value stream mapping activity at the front end of a ERP implementation. And they were using this as an opportunity not just to define the process maps that we would try to use for the ERP project, which is a great thing to do, but they're also using it as an, as an opportunity to surface existing opportunities for improvement inside of the organization, what they sometimes call low-hanging fruit, um, and start the process of getting people to put in feedback as to say, this is how our current process is working, and this is how we think we could do it better. And the uh, manufacturing manager at the time, he said, in, well, an ERP, uh, uh, sorry, ERP, a lean implementation, which is what he called it, it's a bottom-up approach. We are looking for your investment and your ideas on how to define processes and make them better. And I was thinking to myself and saying, wow, that's exactly what you do with a core team in an ERP implementation. You are looking for them to define the processes and configure the system and take that ownership and be empowered to define how the system and how the company is going to process in the future. Um, so we've talked about how how lean and, and ERP can can work against each other in this other very critical way. They can be uh, along the same lines. And it's that idea of, of empowered workers being able to define their processes. Um, and for this, I like the uh, what I call an operational definition of empowerment. So I, ta I talk about empowerment as as the tendency to clearly define an individual's area of responsibility, uh, making them accountable for clear outcomes in those areas, but then providing them the resources and the autonomy 
to achieve those outcomes. So in my mind, resources and autonomy are really what comes down to empowerment. It says, I'm not gonna override you, um, even though you're my direct report, I'm gonna give you responsibility in this area. I'm gonna give you the autonomy to make decisions and I'm gonna hold you accountable to drive change. And that for me was kind of the heart of lean and it's the heart of a good ERP implementation because if you have a bunch of disempowered people who come in as your core team member, it's, it's like going to war with an army of chronically depressed lemmings. It's just not going to work, right? You need people who are empowered and ready to fight the battles and take ownership and get over that hill uh, to help bring this thing bring this thing in successfully. So that, that was a piece there where I think uh, from an organizational standpoint, those are characteristics that that should apply in every successful organization. And then those are the types of people if you're talking about, because I think as we get further along, we're going to talk a lot about people more than process here. Um, those are the people you try to bring into an ERP project. Yeah, that's super interesting. And you talked about methodologies attacking each other. And as you were just describing empowerment, I started thinking about some potential conflicts with the other things you just talked about, you know, so you, when you think about clarity of focus, for example, and let's just say our clarity of focus is that maybe we need to be a little bit more top down, or we need to have more of an overarching global strategy or common operating model that might take away some of that localization, which would then potentially be perceived as taking away empowerment or, or running counter to this concept of empowerment. And I think you started to touch on this a little bit, but how do you balance that top down need with the bottom up need? Because you, you do need empowerment, but you also need clear vision, uh, clarity of focus, that sort of thing. So yeah, so what have you seen there? It seems like what I've what I, what I found is successful is that um, managers are good at defining the box and saying, okay, this is the box. Within this box, I'm going to give you free reign. If you need to get out of that box, well, then we need to work together and do some collaborative stuff. And that's when the, mm -hmm. the cross-functionality becomes helpful. Um, when I when I see a, a culture that is is maladaptive, I often see a lot of people who are very hesitant, and then you have a couple of alpha dogs running amongst them who are just kind of making decisions across departments and overpowering people in this area or that. And that's, I think, in my mind, the idea of a box is that you say, okay, within this box, manager, make this happen. And uh, the ability to define those boxes, I think, is where some of the critical management skill comes in. Right. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. You kind of set in some guardrails from the top down, but then within those guardrails you have, that's where the empowerment kicks in. And if you need to go outside the guardrails, that's where you have to reconcile and figure out, you know, what the right path forward is. So that's a really good, good point. Um, and by the way, uh, I just have to mention this. You, you may be the only guest that every time I interview you, you, you drop at least one word that I have to go look up after the interview. Oh, in this case, in this case, <laughs> in this case, it's maladaptive. I'm like, I have no idea what that word means. I got the context of what you're saying, but I, I need to go look that up when we're done here. So, it's I have young sons who are both studying vocabulary right now. So I, I'm constantly trying to brush up my uh, vocabulary as well. Good, good. My my once a day. So once you know the meaning of the world, we'll we'll be good. Right. <laughs> exactly. So okay, another one you had on your list here was uh, proactivity. Tell us about that. How? What is it? Maybe explain it a little bit, and then talk about how the two companies contrasted against one one another. I think the proactivity, um, and it, probably you could say this overlaps with some of the other areas. But I, I, a proactive company is one that's looking ahead to understand kind of the chess game, uh, three moves out, and they're using that as motivation to get this current step done successfully. It says, "I know where I need to be." 
um, before this CRP or conference room pilot event occurs. So I'm going to do my cross-functional testing really thoroughly so that I know when I get there, I will be ready. Um, proactivity also comes with uh, what I would call the, the willingness to surface uh, bad situations or poor performance early. So if you are in a, a management meeting, uh, one of the, 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 it's very easy in a management meeting to try to get through your updates without uh, surfacing any of the problems because problems create conflict, conflict creates more meetings, and you try to get those kind of, you try to shuffle through those. Uh, a proactive company, I think, knows when the time is right to say, we need to talk through this because this is underperforming. And if this happens continually through we're going to get to a bad spot when this is done. So it's that willingness to kind of surface problematic issues and have difficult conversations early that I think separate companies that are successful from unsuccessful. Because I think uh, going back to my chronically depressed lemming metaphor, um, when there were times when we needed a, with this one with one company, we needed honest feedback about how team members felt we were doing and how ready we were. Um, that feedback was the kind of feedback you heard three months later in a whisper. Um, I didn't need that in a whisper. We needed that, you know, five months ago before we, you know, started pushing forwards So that honest feedback. And that, that is, in my mind, one of the proactive traits of a successful organization. Yeah, they went really well put. I, I agree with that. And you're also, you're, you're sort of hitting on a whole nother can of worms, a whole nother cultural dimension, which is just that candor, you know, the, the ability to communicate openly and realistically and honestly. Uh, within an organization. And it's amazing how many organizations get bogged down by their own internal politics or fear, micromanagement, you know, things that would uh, undermine that ability to have those sort of candid conversations right then when you need to be having them. Exactly. Yeah, super, super interesting. All right. Thanks, Brad. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll ask you some more questions about these case studies. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Brad Feeks, and we're talking about a tale of two ERP implementations and how one seemingly similar implementation can succeed and another can completely fail. Let's jump right back into it. Okay. And then what about, uh, you had also mentioned sense of ownership. Is that sort of, is that like empowerment or is that, is that different? Is this a different concept? Um, well, I would say it, empowerment is kind of the top down. sense of ownership might be thought of as the bottom, mm -hmm. bottom, bottom up. Um, when I think about some of my best uh, individual core team members, they were the ones who were just excited to take on this area of their project and, and represent their area and do whatever they needed to do to make sure that that area implemented correctly. 
Um, and because of that, they had that sense of ownership that when they would work through the configuration of a system and the definition of business processes, let's assume it's a sales area, uh, the, the movement of quotations to sales orders, and then the final processing of, uh, processing of sales orders before they became uh, work orders. So before you handed them over to manufacturing, to to know that okay i have to deal with uh, the outputs of manufacturing i get the the inputs of outside sales and i inside of that i have all these challenges in defining that process i'm going to take those on i'm going to find out what those challenges are i'm going to be setting up meetings i'm going to be pulling in resources i'm going to be asking questions that sense of ownership that a successful company has is um so much stronger than an unsuccessful. I say, um, uh, if a consultant ever feels like they're pulling teeth when they do their job, when they ever feel like they are pulling their con their their customer along, kicking and screaming, you're probably running into a, a sense of ownership problem, where that the uh, appropriate ownership is not being uh, presented by your core team members, um, and quite often that is a function of empowerment, right? Uh, a poor, a disempowering environment that's constantly kind of pulling the rug out from underneath people is not going to foster a sense of ownership. Now, I use the Cool Hand Luke metaphor. I don't know if you've seen the movie Cool Hand Luke. Uh, I love Paul Newman, uh, whether it's Long solid time, dressing yeah. or... All right, perfect. Whether it's solid dressing or otherwise, I like Paul Newman. But there's this great scene in Cool Hand Luke where they wanted to break him and they have him dig that pit. And as soon as he finishes digging the pit, they have him fill it back in. And as soon as he finishes filling that back in, they have him dig it out again. And they keep having him do this repetitive, monotonous, fruitless task until he finally breaks down. And um, I've been told that organizations are kind of like that. When you are constantly undermining your employees by pulling the rug out from underneath them, you get to this situation where you slowly create a bunch of cool hand loops and you kind of break them. And when you do that, you take away that sense of ownership away from them. Uh, so when you when you have a company that hasn't done that, you get these folks who are just, you know, ready to take things on because you can tell that they know that no one's going to be taking the pulling the, the rug out from underneath them. Someone's going to be letting them take this over the finish line. And as a result, the, the sense of ownership is amazing. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess I, uh, before we get to your to your, unpack your last uh, bucket as it relates to culture, I have to ask this question just because it ties to the last thing, the last two things you talked about, and that is. Uh, two things you would talk about was this concept of ownership. And then we were also talking about that sort of candid, uh, honest, open conversations internally and decisions that need to be made. So I'm, I guess I'll ask you this as, as uh, you know, being you being a part of the system integrator implementation partner of our community, um, Estes Group is a VAR that helps companies implement, you know, different types of uh, ERP systems uh, on the technical and functional side. So when, when an SI or a VAR like yourselves come in, um, sometimes I, in this, I, honestly, having worked with Estes enough, I know this does not apply to you, but a lot of your peers, this does apply to, which is you come in and you tell the, you tell the customer what they want to hear. And there's a uh, lack of ownership that kind of comes along with that because now I'm, I'm buying into this whole sales message that I'm getting from my implementation partner. So now suddenly I've sort of deferred ownership to my partner and they're the experts. So I'm going to let them do all the work and, and I'm sort of seeding ownership. And then there's also the honesty part of it where, you know, a lot of vendors, quite frankly, in the market tell lies to, you know, they, they share lies with their customers to try to close a deal. They may not be, think they're lying. They're, they're, they're using the typical sales and marketing spin that, you know, gets people to buy their software, buy their services. So how do you balance that? Like if you're working with a partner that might be, even if it's unintentionally introducing those dynamics into the equation, 
what what advice would you have for a customer that you're you're also saying, hey, you've got to have this honest and open communication. Um, you need to you know be empowered. You need to have the ownership, all that stuff. How, how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, those are great questions, and they are real legitimate challenges. Um, when you're at the at the front end of a project, you're making some estimates based on a lot of assumptions, um, and quite often you don't know necessarily. Uh, how much your customer will take on various parts of a project and the amount that a customer is willing to take on more that sense of ownership again, the more that a customer takes on the less a integrator has to do. And um, in terms of budget, that's one way of obviously keeping the budget in line. Now, as a system integrator, I would hope that if I'm laying out a, a uh, estimate of, of how long this takes, it would be with those baked in assumptions saying, hey, we're expecting that you're going to provide six people at least 50 percent utilized on the project that you're not going to be pulling them away yet, et cetera. You lay out this is within this context, we think it should take this much effort um, on the customer side. I was speaking to a customer, how do you vet a uh, an integrator who's making a proposal and uh, not over-promising and under-delivering? Uh, you would be trying to surface those, those assumptions saying, okay, is this what you believe to be the full project? What are the things that could drive this project over? Uh, have you accounted for these areas of the business? The best customers I've had have been very critical of our own offerings and saying, are you sure you're putting enough time and effort into this specific area? Because we think this area might be a problem. And so then we have that conversation to say, okay, well, maybe we need as, a, as an integrator to talk a little bit more about your business requirements there before we come up you know, with a high level estimate that can lead you down there. So it, definitely the idea of candor before the paperwork is signed is really critical and understanding yeah. these were our assumptions because uh, if, if something, ha if you have a shared assumption going into a project, that's about the best thing you can do because you have, you have line of sight to what you thought you could do and what you couldn't. And now you can start measuring against that immediately and saying, okay, this stage of the project right out of the gate, we thought we could do this. We've actually done that. Are we tracking? Do we need to make adjustments? And you want to make those adjustments as early as possible so that there are fewer, fewer surprises as possible later in, later in the game. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of like, um, as you're talking through all this stuff, it, it's, it makes me think that, you know, if you're an organization that's about to go through a transformation, you've got all these outside forces, you know, that, that could influence your, the way you operate or the way your transformation goes, you've got different software and technology options. You've got different system integrators and uh, different outside third parties that might be helping you through the transformation. You've got different methodologies and frameworks and skill sets you could be drawing from. And a lot of times those are in conflict and there's no, it's not a clean puzzle to put together, but at the end of the day, it is your puzzle to put together and you kind of have to figure out what, you know, do I have the right system integrator? Are they telling me the truth? Do I feel like they're telling me the truth? Are they being a good partner? Are they enabling me to be empowered and to own this project and all the stuff you just talked about? So I think that's a, maybe a, if I were to summarize a bottom line nugget to take away is that everything you're saying leads me to think that you know, you need, you need to have that level of ownership and just know that it's your project. It's not the system integrators. It's not the technology vendors. It's not a methodology issue, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Really, you, you do. I mean, you want, of course, uh, a system integrator who has a lot of skin in the game. And I think it's too easy sometimes for folks to make promises and then hope that they get transferred to the next project before the before anything starts hitting the fan. Um, but uh, at the same time, as a, as a customer, you got to understand that I'm owning this system. And when the system integrator is gone, I'm still going to have this system. I'm going to be responsible right. for its ongoing maintenance and configuration. And that basic understanding needs to be there from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. You're the one that has to live, live with it. That's a, that's a good point. Um, and thanks for, thanks for uh, 
uh, amusing me or take, going with me down that rabbit hole, but I thought that was a, an important one maybe to touch on given yeah, everything you've sure. talked about so far. Um, so, in, so the last bucket you had mentioned earlier was uh, cross-functionality as sort of the cultural dimension that you see that you see as a big difference between successful transformations and the ones that aren't. What, what do you mean by that? Well, it, for me, cross-functionality is for team member. It's a great attribute of, of people in general in terms of your end users. Um, so I think it probably exists most at that level. I had uh, on one on one of my uh, projects, which was one of the successful ones, I had uh, one of my uh, standout team members when we we kind of went around the room and say, well, what are you what are you trying to get out of this project personally? Do you have any personal goals for this project, et cetera? We kind of go through the room to talk to people and see what where their minds are at. And he said, well, you know, I've always been in this area since I entered the company. I really want to understand what the rest of the company looks like. I really understand, and I think this individual was in sales. I want to know how manufacturing uh, works and I understand how I affect manufacturing um, or, or inventory. I wonder, I want to understand how inventory is integrated with sales or how sales uh, affects the engineering process. And that's in my mind, the, the great thing about cross-functionality is that that ability to get three or four steps outside of your own IPO diagram and understand what those outputs look like and what those inputs look like, because we're all someone's customer and we're all the supplier to someone else internally. And uh, folks who are, are interested and willing to know that are, are much better at configuring the system, one, because they're taking those things into consideration. Um, they're also doing themselves a favor because ERP projects are uh, more than in anything is for an individual ERP team member, they're this great opportunity to learn the entire business. And uh, a, a ERP team member who doesn't realize the value of that, I think is really doing themselves a disservice. So if you have to see that value, I think that makes for a really positive uh, outcome because one, they're learning the system better. Uh, they don't need to be always relying on someone else to help them if they need to set up a test scenario. If you, if you are a manufacturing person and you've gone and you've learned how to enter a sales order so that you can execute against that sales order. You don't need to be waiting on other people to do your work for you because you've kind of extended yourself. That doesn't mean you're going to be a salesperson when the when the project's done, but it means that you've had that extra bit of leverage that you can now use going forward. Yeah, that's a great point. And it, it also contributes to accomplishing some of these other things you, you've already talked about, you know, the, the cross-functionality mitigates that risk of tribal knowledge of uh, just walking out the door. You know, when you're cross-functional, you're, you're hedging against that risk, even if that's not your intent. Um, it's also, you know, in a way to create ownership. So you've got this cross-functional team that understands the entire operation. So you're inherently creating some sort of ownership across the organization. So I think that's a, a really good point. All right. Thanks, Brad. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll ask you some more questions about these case studies. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. 
Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Brad Feeks, and we're talking about a tale of two ERP implementations and how one seemingly similar implementation can succeed and another can completely fail. Let's jump right back into it. What I want to do, uh, we're actually getting some comments and questions here, on, especially on LinkedIn, which always tends to be our most uh, active uh, engagement from, from audience members. So maybe I'll pick a, a couple questions and comments here, and then uh, I've got some follow-ups for you as well. For sure. Um, so, uh, just a few things. First of all, we have a, like I mentioned before, a global audience. We've got uh, people from Spain, Norway, Jordan. Um, obviously, the United States is is one uh, where we're at. Um, London in England. So we've got a, a good good audience. Just as a as a sample, those are some of the countries that people are listening in from today. Um, but some of the comments here. Um, this, this comment is from Lisa on LinkedIn. She says that uh, the, this is a great list. You know, your list is a great list. These factors would be key to any transformational initiative. And it's a great point. I totally agree and was thinking that too. It's like, forget ERP for a minute. This is just about any sort of transformation, whether it's HCM, CRM, or just a business transformation of sorts. These are really good. These apply to any sort of massive change effort that a organization might go through. Um, and then uh, another comment here, this is from Liam on LinkedIn as well. Uh, and just curious to see, um, maybe to come back to this whole concept of, uh, I think you were talking about this when we were talking about uh, clarity of focus, I believe. But uh, Liam says, cowboy companies have a cognitive dis dissonance and can't see why their behaviors are self-harming. So have you seen that? Or did you see it in this example where, you know, they've got this gunslinging cowboy mentality, but they don't, they think it's a good thing. And maybe it was a good thing. and has been a good thing up until now. But now as you try to maybe add a little bit of structure, take away a couple of the guns that they're carrying around. You know, do you, do you see that, that they don't realize that there is a, a downside to that, that kind of culture? I think for sure that that, um, that kind of cowboy culture can undermine some things. Let me give you a couple of little examples. This one is actually coming from an earlier company of mine. The company touted its customer service, and this had to do with the delivery of uh, replacement parts or what have you, if they needed them out in the field. Uh, uh, general manager got a call six o'clock at night, the factory's already closed. I need this part into the field. I need it in a hurry. He, he looks around in inventory in the stocks. Nothing's there. He sees a part that's already been assembled on an existing piece of machinery, pulls out a wrench, uh, pulls the material off the existing component, throws it in a box and sends it, you know, great customer service, except now in the morning, the shop is struggling to figure out, oh, Suddenly, I can't finish this piece of equipment. I'm late on this other shipment now. I've got to pull this equipment offline, put it into a queue, which is inefficient. Now it's sitting there collecting dust, getting banged around. So you can see that's kind of a tangible example of I helped one customer, I hurted another, and I confused the living daylights out of my own staff. Um, so that, that's kind of one, I think, cognitive dissonant example that might make a lot of sense uh, to someone. Uh, another would be kind of broadly speaking, uh, the, the customer is always right tendency. Um, we design products to meet customer needs. And in especially in engineer to order environments, I think that's a tendency that can take over a company where everything they do is a snowflake. And the inability to have repeatable processes is driven by that belief that our core competency is satisfying custom demands. Um, I see more successful companies sort of pull back on the 
customization route to say, Mr. Customer, I know you wanted it that way. I can get 85% of what you need for a lot less money. Is that something you're willing to do? Most customers are willing to go there. Um, so I see that's an area where standardization and taking, you know, at least you, you keep the cowboy hat on, but you take off the Stetsons maybe, or the boots, boots. Stetson is a hat. I, I'm, I, I'm, I suck at, my cowboy metaphors are falling. I'm terrible at metaphors flat. too. That's all right. I was, I was with you though. I was following you though, even, even if it was wrong. Uh, perfect. But so, so dialing back just a little bit of that, I think can have good gains for a cus for the company and for their customers, because you're giving them something else of value. In this case, it's a cost reduction by standardizing. I can give you this product, but I don't have to spend all that, you know, high dollar trying to fine tune it and, and custom engineer it for you. So that's a couple areas where I think some of that cowboy culture can be dialed back a bit. Yeah. Great, great point. And, and as you were talking about the, uh, the, the first example, you know, the, the example of someone pulling apart or a, a finished good for another customer who needs a rush, but then you're hurting the other customer. Um, a lot of organizations, especially in the mid market, I'd say you see a lot of these heroics where the company has grown and been successful because they have these heroics. Like I'm doing what's best for this customer. And mm -hmm. if I'm the guy or gal that did that, I'm going to take a lot of pride in that. I, I'm sure I'm not thinking about the impact it had on another customer and the fact that I just you know, messed up the order for another customer. But in my mind, I, I saved this, I, I made this customer happy, despite the fact that there's process limitations or system limitations, whatever, I, I was still able to do it. So now when you start talking about taking that away and say, oh, actually, we're not going to do quite so much gunslinging, we're going to have a more standard process mm -hmm. for how you prioritize orders or how you allocate orders to customers. Um, that may be good in theory for the business overall, and it probably is good for the business overall. But for me individually, like you're taking away my ability to be heroic. And that's what I take mm -hmm. pride in. So now you're really talking about taking away my pride. So I think that's where a lot of that unintended or that hidden resistance to change comes from is because I'm not a bad person because I'm resisting the fact that now you want to standardize these processes. I really do want to help the customer. I take pride in that. So mm -hmm. how do you, you know, have you, have you seen that before or how, how have you seen organizations sort of reconcile that or work through that transition? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see that uh, a lot. And it's, it's you know, going back to our, our bullet points, that individual, that firefighter, you know, everybody in America praises our firefighters, right? And right. no one pra praises a fire preventer because you never see the the problems that they avoided. Um, great point. But when you, when you have someone who is uh, a firefighter and has been raised in a culture of firefighting and praised for that, it is a real challenge to take that away from them. I think the key where I've seen success is, in being able to find the new things that you replace that become the things that you take pride in, right? I take pride in consistency. I take pride in delivery. Um, if your firefighting hit our on-time shipment schedules, maybe you say, well, our on-time shipment schedule took a hit for that firefighting. Let's focus ourselves on that as our core metric and try to drive that uh, really positive sense of ownership and take that and try to re-channel it uh, towards something that's a little more adaptive. Right. Yeah. Very good stuff. Um, so uh, here's another uh, comment and then a question from uh, Sam Graham, who is a member of Third Stage's uh, VIP Superfan Club. He's, he's on a, a lot of our, our live streams. So thanks for, for being here again, Sam. Um, so his first comment is, this is pure gold, chaps. So uh, nice job. Kudos to you, Brad. This is good. This is really good stuff. I totally agree with, with Sam. I'll, I'll second that. And then he has a follow-up question here, which is, is it true that companies need to refocus when they change from being a large, small company to a small, large company mm. while doing an ARP or digital transformation project? I love that question. I'm curious to hear what you think. 
Well, I, you know, that, that's a great one because I, I was working with one company that said that exact same thing to me. They say, we need to go from being a big little company to being a little big company. And we need to understand what that means. Um, and there is a lot of refocusing that needs to happen. I did a, a I think I have a, a podcast or a presentation that I did that speaks about this very thing about when you get into a larger organization, more structure quite often is required in order to keep things from getting disorganized. And this even exists inside of your ERP system with things like your bill of material structure. You can have a very loose bill of material structure in a small company because, again, tribal knowledge, oh, you know how all the pieces go together. As you need to ship more products and your product complexity increases, the bill of material structure becomes kind of an important thing because now you need to know where this component needs to get built because you've had to add another building where they make subassemblies now and your subassemblies are all occurring over there so they can't just be a a phantom bill of material that blows up into a parts list you need a discrete assembly that's being made in that other area so that they're accountable so that they have a plan that they can work against so as you're moving into a different kind of organization uh you really do need to tweak how you might implement your system and it, and it is a i would say it's one of the biggest challenges is to do a business scale transformation at the same time that you're doing an ERP transformation. I had a company once, they were uh, venture capital owned and they wanted to get to be this great big sellable thing really quickly. So they combined three facilities into one, implemented ERP and then moved to a new facility at the same time. So it was the consolidation of kind of three core elements of the organization all at once. It was um, it was an interesting experience and probably fodder for its own hour-long session. But um, you really do need to try to figure out what your target is when you jump into that ERP system configuration because you, you can configure it around a small company. You can configure it around a big. If you're trying to do both at the same time as your company is transforming, it's kind of like trying to hit that moving target. You get that moving target scenario is that you're, what you configured on in June no longer applies in July. Yeah, makes makes total sense. Um, yeah, that's a good good point. Uh, so, how about this? Uh, it, I know we're up on an hour here, and, and this is easily something we could spend a whole another hour on. You know, different dimensions of the, of culture here. But if we have to sort of summarize or, or close the loop on all this, when we think about, um, I, I asked you earlier about the question about is this a, are these cultural dimensions things that are baked into a company's DNA, or is it something that you can mm -hmm. develop those muscles and change. So kind of along those lines, when you think about an organization's culture, um, I guess just to start, if if I don't demonstrate those cultural strengths that you're saying are, are key to success and are going to enable a more successful project, but I also know that I need to change and I need to implement new technology or process changes, organizational changes, I need to go through some sort of transformation, but I don't have the right culture to support it. What do I do? Do I just not do anything? Do I do? I, how do I prioritize? How do I, right. how do I, go down this path right we can't just sit around and do nothing that's that's the obvious answer but what can right. we do uh let me give you a couple of anecdotes sometimes an anecdote explains this better than a, a ramble or maybe an anecdote is a ramble but don't mind me um so i had one company they had been very uh kind of top down command and control and they wanted all at once to kind of become empowering so a manager who had manages people in kind of a dictatorial stance for a good 20 years suddenly said, guys, you're in charge. I'm going to leave you to um, design the factory. They were building a new factory at the time. You design the shop layout. I'm going to give you full control. 
these were individuals, uh, supervisor level, uh, you know, shop manager level type folks who had never been given that control before, never had developed those muscles, those skills of decision making and ownership and all these pieces kind of that we talked about. They struggled to um, come up with new ideas. So basically they implemented the old factory footprint in the new one. They fell back on what they knew and they reinvented the past. So there's definitely a challenge of it can't just be, oh, you're empowered. Now go do it. There's got to be something that comes along with that. Um, I go back to uh, so I came out of Six Sigma and Lean and was very process oriented for the early part of my career. My my life, everything was a process flow. Um, then I went read Good to Great. Um, you've probably read that. And uh, he took a very different approach. He didn't focus on process. He focused on people. And he said, the people are where everything starts from. Um, and, and, and trying to define good processes in the absence of good people is a, a real challenge. So I've seen what I've seen companies do who are trying to make this challenge. Quite often, it, it involves the addition of new people and uh, finding the right people. It becomes the hiring activity. Someone told me, if you ever want to scale your business, you need to get into the HR profession. And it's, it's that kind of idea is that you need to understand what makes a good, what good resource and how they could fit into your organization. And then you start empowering those people. And it, the hope is that it becomes contagious. You put the right people in positions of control and they similarly work to their direct reports and downstream of, okay, I'm gonna start giving you more decision criteria. I'm gonna start giving you clear objectives and I'm gonna start letting you kind of build those muscle sets to be able to do those things. Um, I think, and this is, you know, probably a good question for you because you jump into a lot of organizations and and assess them at the onset of an organization. Uh, it probably you're thinking the same thing when you start assessing the culture of a, of a company about to dive into ERP. What do they need to do to try and get those things uh, ready to be successful? And for me, probably it would start with candor again. Is that we need a, a good, honest uh, assessment of this is where we think we are as a company. These are some of the areas where we need to start developing skills and then you start having conversations between core team members and their old managers or what have you to try to figure out okay uh are we working through this idea of i'm going to be making decisions that affect your department uh are we good with that are you having a struggle there and then we you know need to spend more time i would say the the long and the short of it is it's good if you have people who are specialists at that that form of change management who can help mediate and guide that because quite often uh, an erp consultant is not a psychologist and is not going to be great at managing those pieces. So quite often, if you run into a situation where change management and culture is a challenge, you're probably looking to try to bring in some people who can help kind of guide that whole uh, enterprise forward. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very well put. And that's, uh, that is something that our, our many of our clients hire us for is, is for that change management cultural uh, piece of it. So uh, last, last question I have for you then is, um, and I have a lot more I could ask, but I'll, I'll kind of cherry pick uh, maybe a, a capstone sort of question. If if I'm a a team member or a an employee within an organization, I'm not the CEO, I'm not I'm not executive sponsor, um, and I know that my organization does not demonstrate some of these cultural dimensions that you're saying is important to success. Uh, what do I do? You know, how can I how can I in, uh, affect change within the organization? How can I help bend the culture? How can I influence the right people mm -hmm. to ensure that we you know, are deliberately going into this to, to bend the culture however we need to. Right. 
Right. So that sounds like uh, one of those what to control the things that I do have control of and to know the difference sort of uh, speeches. Uh, for me, it would be depending on kind of where you're at in the organization. I mean, I, I've, I've talked with plenty of people who in that situation, they start looking at the want ads to see if there's a, a better fit for them culturally. And, and I could understand why people are in that that spot. Um, for folks who are kind of in middle management, I, I've seen cases where folks do a, a really nice job of saying, well, I don't have control of what's happening up above me, but I do have control of my direct reports and the area to which I have control. I'm going to try to make sure that I'm fostering that kind of environment and then trying to do my best to manage one level up because uh, you can always try to manage up to that one level and keep that conversation going and try to get your manager to be thinking, okay, well, yeah, maybe these are some some things that are valuable and things that we could, for one, establish a reasonable relationship that is sufficiently empowering, has the right amount of ownership, et cetera, but also might might from there foster its way vertically across the organization. That would be the the, the, the best case scenario that I think I would look for. Yeah. It's almost like a sort of a ground game. You have to influence the right stakeholders, the right executives and sponsors and educate and bring in outside perspectives like the, like the ones we're, we're talking about here, or even just sharing this video or this uh, discussion with with uh, stakeholders within your your project team and your organization could be a, a big help as well. So, sure well, well, this is good stuff. I really appreciate you, you being here, Brad. This is an awesome conversation. I love this topic and uh, it's a super cool uh, marriage of, of technology and change and tying it all together as sort of a glue, which is culture. And so that's a, it's a super cool topic. Really appreciate you being here today. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Love, love, uh, love the opportunity, Eric. Thank you. Okay. Thanks a lot, Brad. Great having you on the show again. Really good stuff. And when we come back from a quick break, Kyler and I are going to talk about some of the findings and lessons and additional thoughts we have on the discussion. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more on Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube and all the typical audio podcast platforms. And be sure to subscribe to our channel as well on YouTube. And be sure to follow us on social media if you're not already. We put out daily content, some really good stuff, so be sure to follow us out there. So really interesting discussion with Brad. Total 180 from the last time he was on the show. And I was super fascinated by the fact that he could talk just as intelligently and maybe even more intelligently about what we talked about today versus what his real core competency is, which is all the managed service and hosting and cloud type stuff we talked about with him a few weeks ago. What were your thoughts on the discussion and some of your, your findings? Oh yeah, absolutely. This is, I think I say this every week, but um, that was my favorite interview that you have done. I mean, I learned so much from Brad the last time, but um, you know, it's pretty amazing that he can talk in such grounded 
um, areas about what those, not only on the technical side people need, but also on the human and people side uh, and strategy side. So one thing, it sounded like the thesis of your conversation with him was the need for communication in culture and kind of setting those standards. And I wonder if you might kind of, who is responsible for that? You know, is it the company leadership? Is the project leadership? Is it the consultants that come in to set the tone for the project? Or um, who ultimately needs to look at their project and say, okay, hold on, you know, this isn't the way that we need to operate um, and just have that awareness around seeing these red flags. So the, the implementation or the selection or whatever project they're working on for company B that's not as successful as company A. Who does that? Well, in a perfect world, it would be your leadership. You know, you'd be you'd be driving that from the top down and you'd be, you know, the executive steering committee and the executive sponsor, the entire executive team, mid-level management, they'd be setting the tone and example and, you know, doing that two-way communication. The problem is a lot of times they that's not in their playbook or their instincts are not to do that. So the question then is if, if you're not an executive, if you're mid-level management or if you're on a transformation project team, what do you do? And we get that question a lot. You know, we've got we've got the hand we're dealt, which is a senior management team that has its strengths and weaknesses, and maybe one of its strengths is not communication or taking that proactive uh, approach to communication, which is a whole other strategic can of worms that we won't get into today because there's probably other issues that need to be dealt with there. But given the fact that you're probably under some time constraints and budgetary constraints, you've got to move forward. So, you know, a, a lot of times that comes down to managing up and really educating and, and helping executives understand why the communication is so important and what they should be communicating on one hand. And then on the other hand, if you can make it easy for them, in, in some cases, we've been brought in to actually ghostwrite and create the messaging that you have an executive uh, deliver, basically. So, the, you know, that can be a workaround, if you will. It's not ideal, but it can work. It can be effective but you still need a minimum level of executive buy-in and support for that concept because they have to be comfortable with the messaging and they have to be comfortable being the face of the change. And that's the the, the minimum ante, if you will. You have to have an internal face of change. It can't be a consultant. It can't be your transformation team. It needs to be the executive team. So that's the, yeah, I guess the way to work around that, that challenge. Right. And so do you think from a high level, a company that has kind of this celebrated fire, fire culture or cowboy culture can they ever succeed with a digital transformation in that kind of shoot from the hip approach? That's that's a great question. I mean, you know, that firefighting shoot from the hip culture, a lot of times is what gets organizations to that level of success they're at now. So you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and you can't realistically expect you're just going to change that overnight anyway. So I think the question becomes sort of like uh, dialing in, you know, you're, you're adjusting the dial slightly, you know, on certain aspects of your culture. You can do that. And if you do that and you're deliberate about it, you can be successful, but it's going to be an ongoing journey. You know, you're not going to change it overnight. You may have a 18 or 24 month transformation plan, but you can't expect in those 18 to 24 months, you're going to completely change that culture and you're going to mitigate all the risk of having that gunslinging culture and you're suddenly going to come out the other side and be successful and you've totally transformed your culture. This is not going to happen. So what you have to do is leverage the strengths, but also start to move the needle and move the dial in the ways you want to. And I think as long as you're aligned on that and you have realistic expectations, that that's huge. And I think that's the actual real problem is too many organizations expect that they're totally going to change that, transform that culture and change it overnight. 
And then they realize that it creates more conflict and tension within the organization and misalignment in the organization than it's worth. And they end up backing off. And then in the meantime, they've you know demoralized a team, spent too much time and money on the transformation. And that's the real problem. So I would say, even if you only slightly move the needle a tiny bit, but you're realistic about it and you've got you know an aligned team that's focused, that that's huge. And that more than anything is going to ensure you're successful. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think one of the most interesting um, concepts that you guys talked about was kind of that idea of tribal knowledge and understanding that we as a culture or society, as a, a just a global professional structure, have created um, or I would say normalized moving from company to company a bit more than, say, our last generation did. So knowing that you have team members with this really proprietary or important knowledge of the organization, how do you capture that or, um, I guess, coach it and teach it to uh, scale to the rest of the organization? Well, as simple as it sounds, I mean, the, the base, the most basic, fundamental, easiest thing you can do is just document stuff. I mean, even if it's a, if it's a process flow, if it's a standard operating procedure, um, just simply documenting the stuff will give you a huge lift typically. Um, if you want to take it to the next level, you can start to get into, you know, process mining tools and technology enablement and uh, learning management systems that capture all this stuff in, in a much more structured way. Um, but that that's sort of like version 2.0 of just the basic version 1.0 being just document the stuff, get it out of your head and get it out on paper. Even if you just throw it up on a share drive and it's a Word document, that's better than the tribal knowledge. And so I think you have to look at it incrementally and not overcomplicate it, not try to boil the ocean overnight. But, you know, when you go through a transformation, it's a great opportunity to really get your processes mapped out early on. And the better job you can do doing that, not only are you going to eliminate that problem or mitigate that problem with tribal knowledge, but you're going to set yourself up for success to be able to manage the system integrator or the software vendor more effectively because you've got a clear vision and a roadmap for what you want the blueprint of your business to be going forward. And so... That, I guess, if anything, builds a really strong business case for why you should do business process management up front, which I know we're going to touch on that in the next segment when we talk about some of the, uh, some of the advice from our, from our consulting team. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so I think that that is so interesting. And I know from my own experience in a corporate digital transformation, it can be hard to be stuck in that middle tier with um, a leadership that might not be as motivated and then cross-functional positions that are just not within your controllables. So what are some tactics that you can utilize when you do see something like this that you say, like, this isn't, this is not going to be successful? Um, And what can you do when you are part of that project team to help mitigate the overall risk of failure? A couple tactics you can try, you know, one is on the, the digital strategy rollout phasing is to say, we're not going to go tackle the one, the parts of the organization that are least or that are most resistant or the least engaged, you know, rather than try and just go directly at the problem and say, okay, we're just going to force the, force the issue. That's, that's not going to go well. And that's not a good way to start a project. So if you can sort of go for the low hanging fruit, go for the parts of the organization that are open to change and they're maybe more engaged or more bought into the whole process, Maybe that's where you start the project and that's where you start to roll out changes and then you build momentum and then you go tackle the, you know, the more difficult challenges um, once you've built that momentum and you have some lessons under your belt and you're feeling more confident. 
the other thing you can do is just simply engage them, you know, whatever, whoever they are, you know, whatever part of the organization that is, engage them in the process, engage them in the decision of what the roadmap's going to be and help them be part of the change of how their part of the organization is going to be affected and what the future state's going to look like and all that stuff. A lot of times that will give you some movement as well. So those are probably the two biggest things I can suggest um, would be the, the level of engagement or getting them more engaged, but also navigating via your digital strategy and your, your rollout strategy, navigating those nuances. Right. Yeah. And I, and I would add just from my own experience is garnering data around that, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, you, you really cannot argue with a business case that's going to um, elevate or increase your overall ROI or ability to showcase results. Um, so that's something that's always worked when I, I've been in that position um, as well. Um, and then and then managing that cross-functionality that we kind of talked about when, we, when we're doing um, project teams, I, I think of the, all the different personalities that we kind of talked with about going over the manufacturing to the sales team, to the communications team, to the IT team. And when we know from previous episodes that it's so important to have all of those stakeholders involved, but what it, what would be the best way for those people to kind of get or open their perspective of the other person's experience with this system? Do you go through those types of things in workshops or how do you help companies understand like, okay, you may be in sales, but this is how it's going to affect, you know, the accounting team type of thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I, to answer, yes, uh, it's through, through workshops. That's one of the most powerful ways to do that is, is through the cross-functional workshops. sounds like maybe we should have you do some of these workshops since you seem to intuitively know that that's the, <laughs> the way to do it. Well, but, I, just, um, I just assumed, I mean, you know, I just uh, assumed that that might be the only way to get that experience, um, you know, I throughout this entire conversation, I thought of my own experience with a, a failed digital transformation where I was trying on the sales and marketing side to incorporate a POS system. And it was me being over here being like, you know, I make the money, I manage the sales channel, IT team, like get on board, let's go. And that project manager would always have to come back to me and be like, okay, you, you need to remember you know, all of the different data entry points, all of the different maintenance and management of these systems and, and those types of things that were outside of my perspective. And the only time I ever got to know those types of things are through those cross functionalities. So when, when you were talking about that, I just think that's so important. Um, and then a side note, you know, I, I yeah. did go on to marry that project manager. So there's, you know, that one is, you know, a, a different <laughs> Oh, that's how you guys met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we got married, people were like, "Wow, really?" <laughs> but um, you, you must know, be just, a really good project manager, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly, right. Um, but I, I think that that cross functionality exercise is is probably a big pain point for the communication of implementing an ERP system. And I wondered if that was what you experienced as well in being an expert in the field. Yeah, absolutely. I, and that, that level of cross-functional understanding that you get internally from having those cross-functional discussions in those workshops, that is huge. And a lot of times it feels like a, a therapy session in some ways because you're you're helping people realize like, wow, I didn't realize, Kyler, that when I fail to enter something in the system, you're having to go re-enter, you're having to go enter it and it's making your job more difficult. I had no idea. I thought, you know, it just magically got taken care of. And, you know, they just don't realize the human and the 
operational impact. So it's uh, it's at, it's very very uh, very enlightening not only to us as consultants who are trying to understand the business and help navigate you know the path forward, but just as much for the internal team as well. So that's all really interesting, Eric. I I want to kind of focus on how you mitigate that risk of miscommunication or any sort of issues within your implementation or software selection plan. So I know Brad kind of took us through those six tactics. And there's one that I wanted to ask you about, because honestly, I've never heard you say this one. And it was kind of the empower bucket, talking about how you empower or delegate or motivate your team members to kind of be a in charge of the implementation or the any sort of digital transformation project. So I wondered if you could kind of explain to us where that might fit in kind of within your key strategies for digital transformation, that empower step. Yeah, well, I think the, the key thing here is that they the employees have to feel empowered in order for the project to be successful and in order for them to take ownership and responsibility and accountability for the overall transformation. So that's sort of a, a prerequisite to it there. Um, but, you know, it's not just a matter of telling people that they're empowered and that you want them involved. It's also actually following through with the action. So, you know, when you get into defining business requirements and looking at demos to even just evaluate the potential systems out there, you want to empower different parts of your organization, not everyone within the organization necessarily, but different parts of your organization. And then when you get into implementation too, you want to make sure those same people or that a strong subset of people are are being um, involved in the in the process throughout. Right, right, and and so could could you give us an example of how you might go about empowering an, uh, a specific facet of the organization or a specific employee in general? Yeah, I, I mean the main thing is uh, there's a few different ways you have to do that. I mean one is um, as I mentioned, when you get into business requirements, you know, involving them in the process and, and inviting them to workshops and making sure you get their input in the, the business requirements, either for the evaluation and or the detailed requirements for the implementation of the technology. Um, that's one example. Um, there's also other ways that you can empower people or to create that sense of ownership um, through even just how you structure the team. You know, what what is the, the overall project team look like and how do you ensure that you've got a strong internal team that can manage the system integrator and your outside consultants and not the other way around. What ends up happening is if you have a weak project team or a non-existent project team, the outside influences are going to take over the project and that's not necessarily a good thing. You want a a pretty even, you want an even, I'd say an even balance between the internal and external resources, but internal resources should always win out because it's, you know, they're the ones that are going to have to live with whatever the solution is longer term. So that project governance, the project structure is another way. And then through change management, you know, more formal change management mechanisms like the change readiness and um, the actual communications that happen. I mean, there's a lot of empowerment that's reinforced there because you're asking for people's opinions, you're getting people involved uh, on the change management side. So those are a few different tools that that can be very effective in, in creating that empowerment. Excellent. And And building on kind of that change management strategy, if you were to give one or two top recommendations to be sure that you are including in your change management strategy, what would they be? Yeah, so 
as far as just in general, what should be, what are the one or two things that yeah, should be? Yeah, so knowing we, we had this great conversation with Brad and he gave us all of these different tactics on how to make sure that not only as a leader, right, that you're embodying the qualities of uh, a good transformation leader, that everyone cross-functionally understands each other's job and we're selecting the right software. But if you have a baseline change plan, because we know that's important from your conversation, what are, you know, one to two things that you really need to include in there? Yeah, well, I think the arguably the most important one is going to be that upfront assessment piece, the organizational assessment, because there is no one size fits all change answer. And I know, you know, change management is one of those things that is so important to transformation success, but it's so misunderstood. And so because it's misunderstood, people are looking for those templates, the boilerplate you know, give me a model that I can go implement to, to address change management. So people go out and they get ProSci certified, for example, and they think, okay, I've got, I'm ProSci certified. I'm going to apply all these ProSci principles to my implementation. And that's a one size fits all approach, which isn't effective. You, you need to know when to, or where to be more surgical and more focused in the tools that you use and which arrow in your quiver you might use in any particular situation. So that assessment up front will help you identify the cultural nuances, the uh, internal political dynamics, the communication types of, of dynamics within the organization. It'll help you understand better just what is the culture of the organization we are today, as well as where those potential pitfalls or obstacles might be organizationally going forward so that you can target that change strategy to fit that specific need. So that organizational assessment is probably the most important one because that dictates or that determines what, what else you should do beyond that. Uh, but having said that, I mean, some of the, you know, one or two other things that are probably the most common or the most uh, commonly used and important to organizations with their change strategies is going to be um, change impact, you know, just really understanding the change impact that the technology and process changes are going to have on different people and departments within the organization. So that again, you can roll out a change strategy that is specific to what the impacts are and enabling those those tangible, measurable improvements. Um, and then I'd say the other piece, you know, if I did pick just one more, um, that's, that's sort of that, uh, really important, uh, common theme would be anything to do with organizational design and defining what people's jobs and roles and responsibilities are going to be on, in that future state. Um, and it's not as simple as saying, oh, your job is going to stay the same. We're just going to give you new tools. Usually the, the impacts are more significant than, than that. A lot of times it, if, it, if it's automating part of your job, for example, I need to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of that time that I just freed up. And, it, you know, too many organizations just sort of assume that problem will just work itself out. But what it does is it creates a lot of fear and anxiety when I don't define that in the future. So it helps you individually to help define that for you, but it also helps us as a business because now we can be more deliberate about the value you and however many hundreds or thousands of other employees there might be, the value that uh, is brought to the organization by each individual. Definitely. Um, well, those are three obviously very important pieces to avoid any of this disruption that we kind of discussed or that what can happen as far as failure. When it comes to the inset, uh, assessment piece, do you do, you do that internally um, to kind of assess your culture? Or I assume a lot of times executives, what I would see happening is they probably don't know about maybe any sort of cultural gaps or areas that might um, fester or birth resistance within the digital transformation process. So does it make sense to do that internally or, 
or involve a partner like third stage or um, any other, you know, change management type of partner in that? Well, I think having a a change management partner is important for for two reasons. And and so I would suggest, yes, having an outside third party do that is going to be more effective um, for two reasons. One is because typically they're going to have a structure and a methodology and a framework that, that, that can be used to to identify um, who you are as an organization, where the warts are, where the pitfalls are. And some of those cultural nuances may already be understood by the organization, but it helps validate those. And then a lot of them are going to be things that you didn't know about the organization or didn't maybe understand or realize. So that, that methodology and framework is important. And then also just having that outside perspective, you know, people that people can see more clearly um, you know, our team, for example, can see more clearly, not because we're smarter than anyone internally within a client, but because we are outside and we see all different types of organizations. We see the strengths and weaknesses of all these different clients we work with. So we can come into these client situations and see differently and, and more with a fresh set of eyes, you know, where the risks are and what change strategy might work best for that particular client. Yeah, definitely. I think that you and Brad should do kind of a, um, a hybrid episode between your first conversation and this one because you you talked about the cloud and all of what that and and he's the only one that has ever been able to explain the cloud to me is it's just somebody else using your computer and I was finally I understand what the cloud is but offering suggestions for cloud hosting and then organizational change management and going through that type of case study project so I think that's what you should do with him next time. That's a great idea. Yeah, he can definitely cover yeah. the, the spectrum. I think he proved that he can cover the entire gamut of technical, the people, the process, to all the stuff in between. Right, right. And if our audience hasn't listened to that one, it's a, a really great listener, especially if you're not 100% familiar with cloud technology or, or cloud hosting. Um, he simplifies it and is really great understanding. But Thank you so much for, you know, kind of unpacking that with me. That was such a great conversation. So many different assets and, and impacts on overall digital transformation and the organizational change and how important culture can be. Um, and we'll kind of dive into that a little bit more at a top level when we talk about our third anniversary video series. Yep. Yep. And speaking of that, that's where we're going to go next with our, our final segment in today's show. We're going to talk about the the three series and we're going to have uh, a, a few different uh, third stage consultants on the show. We'll have clips from them speaking about some of the important nuances of business process, change management, and other parts of, of transformation. So we'll have them on the show here in just a second. We'll, we'll debrief afterwards. We'll take a quick break. If you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. I'm all right today. You don't find... If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, 
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 35. I'm here with Kyla Cheatham. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube and all the audio podcast platforms like Apple, Google, Spotify, etc. Uh, next segment here on the show, though, before we wrap up for today, is to talk about these three series, these these three series videos that our, our team created recently. So, Kyler, what, what exactly are these videos? Help our audience understand what they are and uh, what, what to expect from these videos. Yeah, so this was a product to kind of celebrate all of the interesting um, expertise and experience of our team here at Third Stage as a part of our third anniversary celebration. Um, I know I, I talk about it all the time, but there's just such a vast range of experience and specialists at third stage. So if you're in a specific industry, if you have a company size, if you have a specific system that you're working with, third stage has someone that really specializes and has seen success in selecting that or implementing it. So we wanted to be able to showcase that in kind of some a quick hit video series. So on our YouTube channel, we have a playlist called um, third stage anniversary videos and each one of our stakeholders in there go into their overall specialty and give three tips. Um, so for example, today we're going to start with Christy Barber, who is our small to medium-sized business um, ERP specialist, and she's going to talk about three tips for implementing an ERP or any digital transformation within a small business. So with that, let's play our, our clip from Christy. So I'd like to share with you three tips when you're ready to start your implementation and to make sure it's successful because we all know this is where a lot of the pain starts to creep in and we want to be able to help you mitigate that. So one of the main things that I start to see is data cleansing. A lot of times businesses get caught up in thinking their data is clean today when really as you start transferring it over to a new system, you'll start to see that, hey, there is a lot of dirty data in here that we need to get fixed. So one of those to look at is look at your customers, look at your vendors, make sure you don't have duplicate information in there. And if you do, now's a good time to merge it down and get one vendor with the address and the contact numbers. Another way is to look at your bill of materials. How many bill of materials do you have? Do you have duplicates in there? And be able to start narrowing those down and get that data cleaned up as well. Second is, being able to mitigate risk. And you wanna make sure you have an all-star team, that your stakeholders are involved, you have your managers involved to make this as successful as possible. Because as you're going through the implementation, you're gonna have people that wanna jump off the bridge because this is getting hard or don't wanna be a part of this anymore because it doesn't look like what they're currently doing. So as long as you're mitigating that along the way, it can be successful in having those conversations and sitting down in understanding where an employee may be coming from or somebody that's a manager position to help manage their team to say, um, hey, they, some of this is just hard right now and how, how can we help you walk through it? The last part is looking at strategy. So looking at your timeline for your implementation, you don't want creep coming in of um, making this longer than it should be. You don't want added costs coming in. So making sure you're clearly watching that timeline of what the vendor provides to you, that you have a project manager or you're hiring somebody like us to come in and project manage this implementation for you. And that'll help bring a lot of success. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me directly. Make sure to follow us on YouTube and visit our website, thirdstage-consulting.com.
Awesome. Thanks so much to Christy. She's got some other great videos on our YouTube channel. We have a small business playlist as well. So she usually manages that and um, has some great content there too, as well as some blogs. So check that out if you are one of our SMB listeners. So Eric, she touched on something that I I haven't heard a lot on in her top three tips for small businesses specifically, which is data cleansing. And it sounds like that is a main um a main pain point, if you will, when it comes to small businesses. And so can you kind of explain how you might start that, knowing that these small to medium-sized businesses really don't have a huge data or, you know, a, a huge IT team? Sometimes that is even managed by one person in a spreadsheet, I would assume, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's and that's the challenge of small and mid-sized businesses is that they they grow up without technology oftentimes or without any sort of advanced technology. And they typically grow up without any sort of significant internal IT support. So what ends up happening is you end up with this disparate data that's sort of siloed throughout the organization and not intentionally, obviously, but the, these organizations are just, you know, when they're in startup mode, they're just trying to survive and make the top line revenue numbers go up and bring on the right team members. A lot of times they forget about systems and data and that sort of stuff until they reach a breaking point where they just can't grow anymore with the disparate data and lack of systems and lack of IT. So then when it comes time to implement a new ERP system for these small and mid-sized companies, now your data is you know, more often than not a mess. Uh, the good news is you're smaller, so the, the data complexity is usually lesser than if you're a Fortune 500 company. But the bad news is it's usually in, more of a mess in a different kind of way because oftentimes you don't have the right systems to, to track all that data and to get good reporting out of it and whatnot. Right. And I know Christy has, you know, a background in finance and that kind of data. So she goes in and she helps small business do this step by step. Um, and when I say specialist and we talk about the people on the team, Christy is so ingrained in some of our small businesses that she sits on interview committees for CFOs and really becomes part of their family because they are family owned businesses. And Christy in general comes from a family of entrepreneurs. So that's kind of how we work at third stage is just really matching with the client and um, the overall specialist here. So, so next we're going to go to Brian Potts, who is our, our chief client officer here, one of our managing partners. And he takes us through three of the first steps to a digital transformation. Um, so let's play Brian's clip and then we can kind of talk about it real quick. Hello, I'm Brian Potts, chief client officer and managing partner with Third Stage Consulting Group. Three considerations for your transformation project. I want to go back to a, a cliche that's been building in the industry for the last 10 plus years, and that's people process technology. But I want to put that in a slightly different perspective in that those are the three things that you really want to focus on when you're going into a transformation. So first, from the process perspective, a lot of companies talk about we want we want to make ourselves efficient. We want to clean up some processes. That's great, but that's not enough. Keep in mind that that digital advancements are coming at such a speed that you need to think well in advance in the future. This is your opportunity to gain speed and, and gain competitive differentiation. So when we're talking process, we're talking about making yourselves far better than you are now. Take this opportunity not just to clean up and make a few processes better, but to look ahead at taking a competitive step with your organization. The second is people. So anytime that you change technology and you change processes, people are impacted. We all know we talk about the 
the concept of organizational change time and time again. But as you're heading into your transformation, you need to include people. You need to make them part of the project, not just tell them what's going on, but have them make some decisions, let them be part of the activities in the decision process, involve them in assessments, involve them in some uh, discussion groups. Make clear also on what the future state that you're defining means for people. So rather than just tell people, hey, we're gonna change, tell them what that change means for their their lives in particular, because what people really wanna know is what's in it for me. So make sure that you talk to that as you're preparing for your transformation. And then the third is technology. Uh, obviously we're talking about a technology transformation, but what we're talking about here in preparation is it, understanding the full spectrum of architecture. Um, we, you might be doing a, uh, an ERP implementation, but ERP is gonna touch any number of other aspects across your business. You might be talking about opening up a web portal, but what that, what is that gonna integrate to? Where does that data flow? Do you have a marketing campaign that ties into that? Are you, you need to look at the bigger spectrum and make sure that all pieces fit together before you make one change in one spot in your, your infrastructure. Make sure that you've mapped out the, the overall enterprise architecture and make sure that pieces fit together. So summarizing three topics, people, process, technology, you know, that, that's cliche term anymore in the industry, but give a little bit more clarity on, on what that means and how to in bring that into your digital transformation. And you have more questions or you'd like to talk further on this, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or reach out to me directly. We'd love, love to talk. Thank you. All right. So that was Brian Potts kind of taking an overview of digital transformation, some of the first steps. And the one I wanted to focus on, his last two were some things that we talk about a lot, which are obviously strategy, and making sure that your executives are aligned to that strategy. So since we've already kind of talked about that in the first um, part of this episode, I wanted to get your feedback on his first top tip, which was get help. So when you are looking for going, or when you're going through a digital transformation, you're kind of doing your research, does it make sense to talk to a variety of different partners, vendors, system integrators, um, consultants? Um, and, and how would you kind of go about starting those conversations or building your ERP network? Well, I think the the first thing is to, you know, even just something as simple as going out and Googling, you know, whatever topic you're interested in, whether it's ERP systems or ERP implementations or whatever. And you start to, you, you start to learn who the thought leaders in the space are and who some of the players are. Um, that's one way. Uh, but I think, you know, in that quest to find a network of potential partners or just people you know in the industry that, that might be able to help at some point along the way. You want to make sure you also understand what their motives are, you know, because that that's a, a challenge and a problem in the industry, which is that most players and stakeholders in the ERP consulting industry are are biased. You know, they're 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 there to um, recommend certain products because they make money on it. So you sort of have to take things with a grain of salt and know who the who the truly unbiased players are, and that's why you know we started our company the way we did, which is to be t totally independent and technology agnostic. So I think uh, you know, go, starting out by talking to peers that have been through implementations, um, that maybe have worked with different partners or different systems in the past, doing your Google, you know, internet research, um, and certainly anyone you may have known from your past that that uh, you know, may be able to help, and certainly. Yeah, that's something we help our clients with too is just you know people email us a lot asking like hey do you know anyone in this space or anyone that specializes in a b or c so 
you know, we can be a good resource for that too, just because we deal with such a broad part of the market. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. So it it might sound to our audience a bit salesy for our, you know, our executive that managed sales to say, get help. So I wanted to say, you know, the, the reason he said that, um, because I, you know, was the, the film producer on that, is because he does see how biased the industry is because a lot of our clients come to us after they've already failed and they need a triage type of strategy because they did go straight to a vendor that said, oh yeah, you know, we can do everything you need and this is how much it would be. And they were completely, you know, didn't go through all of the due diligence steps. So Brian, in talking about specialties, he really oversees the sales side and does a lot of the software selection background experience from an executive level. Um, he was also a tennis pro and Eric's college roommate. So deep roots there, right? Yeah, he's, he's claimed <laughs> some of his additional claims to fame. <laughs> right, well. yep. Have you ever played tennis with Brian Potts? Uh, sort of. He, he tried to teach me a couple times. It didn't go very well, not not because he wasn't a good teacher, <laughs> just because I, for whatever reason, I'm not uh, naturally gifted. You're not coachable? <laughs> Maybe that's really what the, the real problem is. <laughs> <laughs> there are some that would probably um, but agree, yeah. Lots, yeah, right, right, right. Um, lots from Brian Potts on our YouTube channel. And if you are a business, just kind of just listening to this as you found it, you're thinking about going through a digital transformation, Brian Potts is a great starting point. So it's just Brian at thirdstage-consulting.com, and he will bring in a specialist to your project or to the conversation. And he's a great kind of informal sounding board to access. So definitely check out his other videos on our YouTube channel. Um, and our, our last guest today um, is Adam Cheatham, who is the Director of Transformation and Strategy here. And he is actually going to do one of my favorite videos, which talks about the three most important types of digital transformation. So with that, we'll turn it over to Adam. Hi, my name is Adam Cheatham, Director of Strategy and Transformation at Third Stage Consulting Group. So, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you guys about today um, is you know, in the celebration of uh, Third Stage's third anniversary, we're doing things in threes. And one of the things that um, has always occurred to me is, well, there are many types of digital transformation companies and digital transformations on the whole. There are really three that um, stand out to me as, as the most interesting. First is the uh, green screen warriors. These are the folks that have been using green screen technology uh, possibly for 40 years or more. The type of technology has done a lot for their company, but they're realizing that it's time to, to, to get into the 21st century. Um, and, and their goals for transformation are, are really getting up to speed with where, uh, where the world is at when it comes to technology. The second is folks that are experiencing such a rapid growth trajectory that uh, they've outgrown whatever it is they're on. Some of them might be outgrowing QuickBooks. Um, some of them might be uh, outgrowing NetSuite. You know, and moving into an, uh, a higher tier of software is, is a goal for them and being able to do that in a way that supports that growth, um, particularly the significant growth projections that they have is something that is, is a lot of fun to really figure out how to, to approach that challenge. And then the third is the cutting edge first adopters. These are the folks that they want to be on the newest 
coolest, baddest software that there is out there. And so they're looking to find out all the bells and whistles. They want the AI, they want the industry 4.0 and the robotic automation and all that stuff. And that's what they want for their company. And that's the style of digital transformation that they're looking for. So those are the three uh, my favorite types of digital transformations. If you have any questions or want to talk about what type of digital transformation you are going through, please feel to reach out to me directly. Uh, follow some of our great content on uh, LinkedIn and YouTube. Uh, looking forward to seeing, out, seeing you and uh, working with you in the future. Awesome. Well, that was Adam Cheatham. Um, I know him. He's sitting probably about 10 feet from me at the moment. <laughs> he's actually out at client travel, right? <laughs> he usually is. Um, but he talked about the three um, most important type of digital transformation. I had never heard this type of content before. So he talked about those green screen warriors or, you know, those companies that are really kind of married to older technology that just can't quite function. Um, and then just the rapid growth. So that's what I want to kind of touch on with you today is those companies that are experiencing rapid growth, whether that's because of the pandemic and they completely needed to do their point of sale system. Maybe you're, you know, a hand sanitizer bobbler and you didn't have enough, you know, equipment to be able to manufacture at that speed that the demand rose. So I'm wondering if you can kind of unpack that for us a little bit. So if you are experiencing this, this rapid growth, what, what are the, some of the first steps you can do to make sure that you're not losing out on business because you're not able to meet a, a client's demand. Yeah. So, you know, it's probably a similar answer to what we might give to a larger, more established organization, but we would recommend this for different reasons. But that reason being that, or that uh, answer being that clearly defining business processes and how, you know, the blueprint or a roadmap for how your business operates, that's a, that's a really important function for, for scale and growth. Um, and it also helps you determine more deliberately where technology or process improvements or organizational changes might help your organization be more uh, productive and effective going forward. So I'd say that's probably a, a good place to start is making sure you have clearly defined processes, the business requirements, certainly if you're going to deploy new technologies and not relying so much on tribal knowledge and, uh, and, and also really understanding those green screen warriors and uh, some of the fires that they're having, the firefighting and things that they're having to do to uh, presumably keep your operations running semi-smoothly. So it allows you to really unpack that and understand how we can help alleviate some of those fires so they're not firefighting and they can actually focus more on growing the business and satisfying customer demand. Yeah. Do you ever experience clients in kind of that high growth stress come to you and be like, we need to change this tomorrow? And how, how do you kind of deal with that in a high growth situation? Yeah, I mean, uh, most clients in the small and mid market, uh, the high growth clients, especially, especially, they tend to have waited too long uh, before they they make a change. And not to say it's, it's there's no turning back or they can't affect change, but it's usually they, they fully admit they should have started this process sooner. And there's never a good time, you know, and so I get it. Most organizations are, you know, sort of, you always have bigger fish to fry until you get to that point where, wow, we just cannot grow with what we've got and we've got to rethink it. So, um, so, you know, that's the reality of it is that they, they, um, they, they generally are in those, those situations. So I think, um, I think that's the key thing is just making sure that you're being as strategic as you can and that you're not losing sight of what it is you're trying to accomplish as an organization, what your goals are 
and really looking critically at yourself and understanding that what worked to get you to the point you're at now isn't necessarily going to be enough to scale you to, to that next level, which is why you know a lot of them are going through this sort of journey. Yeah, and I, I know Adam works with a lot of our high growth um, clients that are in kind of that scenario and has a, a great team of specialists that kind of can take you through how do you do it strategically in implementing a new technology as opposed to um, hastily, if you will. So um, I know that Thursdays really specializes a lot in that and it can come. So how it works is, you know, we'll talk to you and then Adam and Christy, if you're a small to medium business, will work together from the specialist level to the director level to make sure that you're getting all of those different strategies and tactics um, throughout the entire project. So that's how kind of we collaborate on that level. Um, the last one that that um, Adam touched on was those early adopters. And I, I was curious, like, do you, do you ever have customers that come to you and are like, hey, I need a, a, you know, a new shiny sparkly ERP system and that can have all the bells and whistles and automations and these types of things. Um, and you kind of have to dial them back because after you do your assessments, that might actually not be what they need. Um, and how do you kind of move through that communication? Yeah, I think you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with the, the requirements, definition and prioritization. I think understanding what what it is we're trying to accomplish as, as a business and what types of technologies are going to help us get there. A lot of times you find that the the coolest technologies, the newest technologies aren't necessarily the ones that are going to help you get to where you need to go. And, you know, the other component to look at is is just your your culture as an organization and, you know, how risk adverse you are. I mean, if you're if you're not a very risk adverse organization and you're you're aggressive in your risk taking and uh, the way you compete in the marketplace, then you might be a better candidate for some of these emerging newer technologies. But if you're risk adverse, if you're a, say, a third generation family owned business, which tends to be, you know, sometimes a lot more conservative than the first two generations, just because, you know, you're more mature and you're, you have more to lose at that point, And there's a whole bunch of family dynamics that typically play into that. Um, those sorts of organizations might be the, the least likely or should be the least likely to be looking at new technologies that aren't quite proven yet or, or you know, sort of a a swing for the fences or whatever. So you really have to think about, you know, culturally, are we trying for incremental? Are we okay with incremental improvements along the way? Or are we really trying to swing for the fences right now? Back to your previous question. Um, are we trying to get these changes in place now? And how realistic is that given our culture? Those are the, the kinds of questions that we typically ask and help our clients work through. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't even really think about the, the risk, you know, that you really do undertake as a business when you go through a digital transformation. That's a, a great point. So if you were staffing a project and you had a very high risk, so say a, a company that might be a little bit of that cowboy culture that we talked about earlier, who would be your risk specialist that you would put on there from third stage? Oh, from our side, if we were helping a client like that? Yeah, if I, you were helping a you know, client I, like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really any of us. I mean, that's that's a big part of what we do is is help assess that risk. So any any team we put in place, you know, part of what they're looking at is the the risk that you know the culture, the risk tolerance of that organization, and then the risk of the potential paths that a client might take. You know, a client that, for example, is just going to do some incremental upgrades and enhancements to their technology and processes. That's a lot lower risk than the one that's trying to rip out their entire 
enterprise-wide technologies and replace it with something new. That's just a higher risk profile. So, um, so the, those helping a client understand the risk, I mean, that's a big part of what, what we do is help them see those pitfalls and blind spots along the way. So I, I'd say it's anyone on our team. Gotcha. Good, good. Well, happy third anniversary, third stage um, and the team. So if you, if you had to pick three things, Eric, in the spirit of three that you're most proud of now in what you've built here at third stage, what would they be? Um, you know, first, the hands down number one thing is just the, the people we've we've drawn to the team and the people that we've retained on the team. Uh, we just have a, a really good team. And I, I think we, we have a really strong culture as far as, uh, you know, very tight knit culture and we all get along and we're, we're constantly working on how to preserve that culture and diversify and bring in different skill sets and perspectives while at the same time preserving that culture. So that's always a challenge, but I'd, I'd say the people and the culture are, are hands down the number one thing. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I think our, uh, our market presence and brand recognition in such a short period is something that I'm surprised by and, and proud of. I, th I think that's really cool that um, we have such a big influence on the market in such a short period of time. And obviously people like Adam, Brian, myself that have worked together in the past, and we've been doing this for a long time. We were able to bring some of that momentum over with us to third stage to, to help that, but it still surprises me how quickly we've grown and, and established that, that presence. Um, and then the, I, the third thing, which um, maybe sort of a tie or a close third to, to the second thing I mentioned, which is the, the clients we have. I mean, we have such cool clients and just cool industries and just the diversity of clients is pretty amazing in terms of industries, size, geographies. I mean, we have clients, every, you know, every, every continent we have clients that we've worked with um, in, in some really cool niche industries. And just the fact that we're all always learning, I, I feel like I'm learning a lot more now. Uh, probably than I ever have in my career. So uh, the fact that I've been doing this as long as I have, and I feel like the learning growth is actually accelerated. I think that's, that's pretty cool too. And I think a lot of people on the team would agree with that too. Absolutely. Well, good stuff. Um, well, we'll continue um, to post these three series videos. So um, maybe we'll use a few more in some ground control as they're super quick. If you're looking for, you know, just kind of uh, top line information, most of them are about three minutes long, as you've heard here, they just really kind of talk about those top three tips or their specialties. So head over to our YouTube channel, please subscribe. We do um, new videos uh, three or four times a week there. So lots of content and a, a great spot in addition to Eric's channel. It's good stuff and we'll uh, make sure to check check that out. And uh, again, you can subscribe to, to Third Stage on, on their YouTube channel and also check us out on, on social media in general, wherever you are, whether it's Instagram, uh, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, TikTok, wherever it is, you know, be sure to, to look us look for us there. And we've got lots of content we're putting out on a daily basis. Uh, check out new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday on YouTube and all the, the usual podcast platforms. And uh, as always, thank you, Kyler, for being here. Thank you to the audience for being here today. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time on Transformation Ground Control. Mm -hmm.